You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. That's your house, don't you remember? No, I don't. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. That's crazy, man. Call me. I like that. I think there's no such thing as a bad coincidence. I like to remember things my own way, not necessarily the way they happened. Someone broke in and taped us while we slept. Is that you? Are both of them you? We have to get out of here. Why didn't you tell me anything? It's been a pleasure talking to you. October Films invites you to take a trip on David Lynch's Lost Highway. I told you I was here. How'd you do that? Ask me. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Bill Ackerman. Who the hell owns that dog? Also back in the booth is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. You like pornos? Give you a boner? We conclude November 2021 with a special episode about David Lynch's Lost Highway. Written by Lynch and Barry Gifford, on whose book Wild at Heart was based, it's the story of Fred Madison, played by Bill Pullman, a musician who has trouble trusting his wife, Renee, played by Patricia Arquette. And, well, some things happen, and we will be exploring the mystery and the mystery man of Lost Highway. 
That said, if you don't want anything spoiled by our discussion, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the movie. We will still be here. So, Bill, when was the first time you saw Lost Highway and what did you think? The first time I saw Lost Highway would have been uh, opening night, February 21st, 1997. I was 20 years old and I was a major David Lynch fan. I had been too young to see the other films in the theater. So this was my first time getting to be part of the you know initial theatrical audience for a David Lynch movie. I don't know that I was ever more excited for a movie than this in my adult life because it had been five years since Firewalk with me. And, you know, I had books on Lynch that kind of already kind of set the story of like, well, you know, the rise and fall of a, of a, of a weird talent. But, you know, Wild at Heart hadn't been well received and Firewalk with me was this big flop at the time. So this was like a comeback movie for him. And it was kind of like the way I felt about like a band with a comeback album. I, it was a different kind of thing than anticipating a hyped new movie. It was, you know, the return of an artist that I was a really big fan of. So I drove four hours to see it opening night. I was living in upstate New York. I remember like the anticipation, like he was on The Tonight Show. He's going to be on the recovery Rolling Stone a few weeks later. So it was a lot of hype. And I saw it and I remember thinking – the first time I really felt like I didn't totally understand the story, maybe since Eraserhead, as far as like, I don't think Lynch, it was a given with him that films were necessarily like puzzles to be decoded. I mean, there's like ambiguous moments in Firewalk with me and the other films, but it's, this was the first time where I really felt like I need to pay more attention to really figure out this story. But I loved it. I thought it was one of the most beautiful looking films he's made. I was thinking at the time, even in 1997, that the music was going to date it in a way that Blue Velvet and Eraserhead and some of the others was not going to date. Like it, it was very much a, a film of its moment, but I thought it was scary and interesting. I saw it, you know, in f three other theaters before it left the, the multiplexes and it seemed to get faster and more clearer for me with each viewing, but I've always really liked it. And I remember that was a film where I was an English major, but I knew all the film majors in my, my school. And this was all we talked about. Like, you know, it was not like that big a film overall, but like in my world, it was like one of the big films of the year, that and Crash, which came out the following month were like all we talked about. And so I just have really fond memories of like, just, you know, that kind of cinephilia you have when you're like that age and it's like that exciting. And uh, so it's, you know, special film for me, like in the history of David Lynch as well, because it feels like maybe the beginning of stage two of his career, like he's really kind of weathered the storm of being the pop cultural figure of Twin Peaks. And this is really setting him up for all the things that follow, especially like Mulholland Drive, which is the film that this gets compared to, usually uh, in a negative way. I think it's just as interesting. And Jedediah, how about yourself? I also saw it theatrically, probably opening weekend sometime there. It didn't stick around too long here. And I was, it was also my first theatrical Lynch experience. I was a big Twin Peaks fan and, um, certainly had seen his other films, but yeah, this one hit me differently than the others. Went with another person, a coworker who was a big fan of Blue Velvet and, and things like that. And I know that he came away from the thinking, man, Lynch has really finally gone off. You know, he's lost it. He's not making quality stuff anymore. And I thought, no, this is, I think, a new level of quality and, and something to really dig into. And I really, like Bill was saying, I, I took on thinking about it and trying to decode it and figure it out pretty intensely, though I didn't see it again theatrically. I bought it on VHS and I watched it again and again when my wife and I were newlywed. I probably lost us many friends by insisting on uh, watching it with 
with people as sort of a litmus test for are we compatible as, as uh, social friends. Turns out, no, most people never saw again or uh, never really had much of a relationship with. So it took a, a while for me to find people that I could enjoy talking about it with. The internet certainly wasn't what it is now, and I didn't have any connection to online forums or, or anything like that. So I, yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about it myself. And, and yeah, it turns out most of the ideas I had about it that were, were fairly commonly shared things. It, it was significant to me in that it was the first film I'd really spent that kind of time thinking about and, and uh, trying to, it felt like it was bringing things out of me that other films had not yet. And I really appreciated that and enjoyed it. And it's probably, probably my favorite David Lynch film at this point. And maybe just because of what it did for me at that time in my life. Y'all are making me feel very old because I had already seen Wild at Heart and Firewalk with me theatrically. And then I went to see this one with my buddy, Mike Thompson, who's been on the show several times. We went and saw it and I think we only saw it or I only saw it for sure. The one time I felt like, okay, I got this. You know, there's a lot of lynchisms in here. I wouldn't say I disliked it, and there were things about it that I absolutely loved. I mean, I will still do the whole mystery man bit about, you know, calling me on the phone. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. Where was it you think we met? At your house, don't you remember? No, no, I don't. Are you sure? Of course. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. What do you mean you're where right now? At your house. That's fucking crazy, man. Call me. Dial your number. Go ahead. I told you I was here. you do that? Ask me. How'd you get inside my house? You invited me. It is not my custom to go where I'm not wanted. Who are you? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Give me back my phone. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 
that's fucking fantastic. But I was just like, okay, it is what it is. And then I moved on. It didn't stick with me for whatever reason. And then it was a couple of years ago, Jed, when we were talking about Mulholland Drive, that you kept bringing up Lost Highway. And really, I can see Lost Highway being a really good companion piece to that, a really good precursor to what he was doing in Mulholland Drive. And so I said, all right, I'll give it another chance. I don't know if I like it any more than I did back in 97 when I saw it the first time, but still feel it's a very solid movie and one to not be discounted. I still laugh at the same things I laughed at back then. I still enjoy some of the things that I enjoyed back then. I mean, it's a really well-made film and I think I've gotten more out of it the last few times that I've watched it than I did back then. I mean, I'm a different person now than I was then, but it's not my favorite. And I am glad to talk to you guys about this, especially you, Jedediah, since you are such a fan of this one, because I'm really curious on your take about this film. I would I would push back slightly on your calling it a solid film. I mean, I think what you mean is it's a quality film. But there's very little solid about it. I, I find it have the consistency of uh, a Jello or something like that, where you know just just kind of touching it makes the whole thing ripple and move. And wouldn't stand on it. I think it's very good, but I don't I don't know that solid's the right word. Uh, not the one I'd choose. Well, it's funny because a lot of people did hate this movie, and oh my god, it's so confusing. As a critic, I'm offering something I haven't seen before. And Lost Highway has that quality, but it also is a film that makes very little sense, to me at least, and so its violence pops out and seems empty-headed. The story, I suppose, is a metaphor for these times, times in which people don't know who they are and are affected mostly by violence. That's the only interpretation I can come up with. Boy, I feel just about the same way. You know, every time I see a David Lynch picture, I think to myself, this guy is so gifted that if he would only just break down and make a movie instead of being so clever all the time and trying to outsmart himself with basically what are sophomoric little plot devices, you know, stuff that... that it would be very that, hard that to make this convincing. It doesn't pay off. It doesn't yeah. have a purpose. It seems contrived. It seems frustrating and not to an end. No, it just lays there. And, I, and uh, I, again, I don't know if anybody could make heads or tails of this material. I don't find it that confusing. wonder if... If he was to go back and redo this film and keep Balthazar Getty out of it and just keep it Bill Pullman throughout the whole thing, and I know that that's a different movie, but I think the actual recasting of the character threw so many people off that it was like, what the hell's going on? How can he transform from this person to this person? And they just couldn't put their minds around it. And I'm just like, I've seen it before, you know, this like a Bunuel type thing. I've, I've seen that obscure object of desire. I know how you can take one character and replace him with another actor. And then he comes back and there's a real purpose for that. And there's the whole idea of the doubling. David Lynch and doubling goes together like peas and carrots. It's fantastic. And so when he starts to double these characters, when you've got Robert Loggia being Mr. Eddie and Dick Laurent, when you've got Patricia Arquette being Renee and Alice, but I think it just threw a lot of people off. Maybe this is just my opinion that when you have Bill Pullman and Balthazar Getty playing these two different characters that are basically the same character that they just flipped the fuck out and couldn't understand how the movie took that weird left turn, you know, 50 minutes into it. And I'm like, 
yeah, no, this is David Lynch film. I'm, I'm here for the ride. I'm enjoying this. That was the one thing I knew going into it that it would have. All I knew was I'd, I'd read David Foster Wallace had done a set report for Premiere Magazine that came out a few months before Lost Highway. And he has a line in there about there's a scene where Bill Pullman's head turns into Balthasar Getty's head. That's how he words it. So I was picturing like a racer head kind of thing. Like I was picturing like literally like Pullman's head shooting off and Balthasar Getty's head popping up through the neck. Like I was expecting something completely radical. So I already knew going in that there was going to be some kind of switcheroo with those, those two actors. I didn't find that part as confusing and funny because I read the screenplay and I guess it was a lot more clear what's going on in the screenplay than what ultimately you see in the film's a little bit more ambiguous. I think what threw me the first time I watched it was I think the um the changing photograph of the two Arquette characters. And maybe on the first viewing I'm like, okay, I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean yet. And even just when he sees Arquette in the room in red, like the fantasy, like thought am I missing might be missing something with all of these, you know, coming and going Arquette characters in this last half hour. But, you know, the actual transformation of the protagonist didn't throw me weirdly, although I guess that is the fact that they never really explain how this is all happening and that it's all in a loop. I think maybe what happened was get the impression that Lynch was so unhappy having to solve the Laura Palmer mystery that he was reluctant to solve mysteries ever so clearly again, <laughs> and that... One thing I love about Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire is, you know, the flexibility. Like, there's so much, you know, read this as. I mean, when I saw it in college, I remember people saying, well, the mystery man is the angel of death and he's marking the house with a camera the way that the angel of death would mark the house in blood. Like, they had, like, all this mythology around it. And then I remember when Lynch started talking about it, like, oh, it's just an O.J. Simpson thing. I'm like, oh, is, that's all it is? It's just it's just the O.J. And then it almost kind of deflated the magic a little bit for me when he even put it in, in like, a literal pop cultural context because you just don't think of him as even watching the news, let alone being inspired by it. <laughs> I think I was a little prepared too, because when the movie, and I'm kind of skipping over the first part and just going right into the Balthazar Getty part, when the Balthazar Getty thing happens and we start that storyline, that storyline is so Typical film noir, this whole idea of the auto mechanic and the rich guy who's a gangster and he's got his mall and the mechanic really likes this girl and they end up, you know, having this whole plan and how she's going to escape from Mr. Eddie because he's just this evil dude and made her do all these awful things. I mean, that's so many films noir that we've seen before. And I knew that. Lynch trucked in that. I mean, there's a little bit of that in Blue Velvet, but I mean, that storyline in season two of Twin Peaks, like the most hated storyline, the whole thing of James going off on his little adventure and basically partaking in a whole Postman Always Rings twice adventure. I'm like, okay, yeah, I've seen this before. I know that he likes to do this. So it's like the side story to the other story. And we know he knows films noir. So, all right, I'm here for this. And then it's where it gets really interesting for me is when it starts to come back more towards the Fred story. And then things start to, I guess, to your point, either fall apart or come together or a combination of both 
where everything starts to, to come together like a car crash and you don't know who's seeing what. And once you get to that hotel room corridor with that third arcade, if that is the third arcade, it's like, okay, I thought that it was very fun that he was exploring film noir in that way. As a young guy seeing it and, and thinking about it, pretty proud of myself for following what I thought was the sort of wide shot. What's Mel Brooks quote about David Lynch is it's like a painting. You know, you get a step way back and you see it and you're like, ah, it's a painting, but you get real close and you lose yourself. In the, so, but being able to put together the, yeah, this is, this is a guy who is jealous of his wife. He's insecure. He's cuckolded or at least imagines that he is and he murders her and something about the guilt or, or the, the belittling. That, that she she put him through that he he pictures that he's recast himself in his mind as, as instead of a insecure cuckold as a cocksure punk who instead of his wife cheating on him with somebody else he's going to uh, take her away from a powerful man you know he just inverts all his insecurities and turns them into strengths and and then yeah by the end of the film he realizes the fantasy breaks down and he he can't sustain it anymore. So that was the interpretation of it that I had for many years. But I, I do like thinking of Lynch's stuff as paintings because I don't decide I'm going to look at a picture of a dog and go find a painting of a dog. I, I see a picture of a dog and I say, oh, that's a picture of a dog. Every time I encounter Lost Highway and, and a lot of Lynch's work, I do see it a little differently and I appreciate that about it. I'm not so entirely sold on, on things that I, I thought about it for years and years and, and I think that's that's pretty remarkable that I can find it just as kind of invigorating and, and all these years later and I can think something differently about it and I, and I don't think that, the, I don't think anybody's impression of this movie is, is wrong. <laughs> I think it's uh, it, it sustains many impressions that maybe say more about the viewer than, than the artist. Yeah, I never thought of Lynch's earlier films as especially self-referential. I mean, there's certain images like talk about like a figure emerging from shadows, like there's certain kind of visual motifs you see or curtains or maybe floor patterns. But this was the first one where I really thought of characters echoing earlier Lynch surrogate characters. Like I think that the the sexual insecurity and anxiety of Eraserhead and Henry Spencer is the Fred Madison character updated. And I think of the the young man who's trying to decide between two different women, the uh, the innocent good girl and then the, the more dangerous femme fatale that has connections to a uh, violent gangster character. I mean, Pete Dayton is Jeffrey Beaumont, but like a less innocent one, like one that is – Kind of an asshole, but it's but it's but it's it's another version of that kind of scenario, right down to going on the joy rides and everything. And it's the last time he really did the Lynchian hero that that explicitly, or at least as a man, because I think one thing that Lost Highway got thrown at it was is this film, you know, misogynistic, and this is something that kind of carries over from the Blue Velvet and to a lesser extent, Fire Walk with Me and Wild at Heart criticisms that by making the Lynchian hero a woman. You know, you kind of make it a more complicated thing and it didn't get the same criticisms as Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. I mean, um, you know, Lost Highway, I think, since you mentioned the film noir tropes, I always, I always assumed that that was 
Barry Gifford's influence. I have no idea. They never really talk specifically about who wrote what or – I mean, I know that the videotape hook comes from Lynch – uh, it just feels like you said, you know, Postman always rings twice or double indemnity. I mean, we can see echoes of Detour. We can see echoes of Kiss Me Deadly. I even think a little bit of Rebel Without a Cause with like, you know, near the observatory. And of course you have Natalie Wood's daughter as the, as the good girl in this. So it's, it's a lot more film referential than you. I mean, there's film references in Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet. I mean, you have lots of references to Sunset Boulevard. You have Laura references all throughout Twin Peaks. But this is the one that seems to be the most kind of the same way History of Violence has got more film references than other Cronenberg films because Josh Olsen's a cinephile. And so he's bringing in all this other stuff that Cronenberg wouldn't be so overt. Lynch is kind of the same way. But um, I just assume that Gifford is is pushing the the more classical film noir element. I could be wrong. That's always how I, I read that relationship. But it's not uninteresting for that. It's it, it kind of gives him a structure t- and room to go and play within that framework. But if you were to compare it to something like Mulholland Drive, there's less standalone set pieces that really feel like little miniature movies the way that film has. Like this has the scene with the mystery man at the party and dial your, dial your number, I'm in the house right now. And like a few things, like I would say maybe even the song for a song to a siren sex scene on in the desert. Like there's set pieces, but it's not like – because I showed someone this in Mulholland Drive back to back once thinking that Lost Highway was the better film for years because that was what I grew up loving first. And when I saw Mulholland Drive, it felt like, oh, he's, he's doing that again, but that's, that's cool. And then the second time I, when I watched them back to back, it's like, oh, but Mulholland Drive has all these perfect little mini movies in them. You know, he's a great designer of set pieces, even with the films that aren't so narratively tight, like Wild at Heart has all these great set pieces. Um, Lost Highway doesn't feel like that to me. I don't know if either of you would disagree. It feels a little bit more coherent in a way, even though, like you said, it is a little bit more slippery as a story, but it doesn't feel like it breaks away for these kind of detours in the way that, you know, no pun on detour, you know, but like, it doesn't have quite as many like musical interludes or things that, uh, you would find in maybe like the most acclaimed work of his. I'm a big fan of Barry Giffords. I've read several of his books and I've seen all the movies that he's credited as, as being part of uh, either adaptations or, or things that, that he's, he's written. I really, really enjoy his stuff. I'm trying to remember where I heard. I remember if it was in one of the Lynch interviews I read or, or maybe even a, a Barry Gifford interview, but where they, Talking about their collaboration, calling uh, Lynch someone who makes the the ordinary fantastic and or extraordinary, and and Gifford someone who makes the extraordinary ordinary, and I, I do think that that that's an unusually apt description of, of both of them. That you read Barry Gifford books, and then like every page is seems to be filled with outrageous stories told in a in a very matter of fact. And, and kind of downplayed uh, manner. And you see a Lynch scene is just somebody, you know, eating a bowl of cereal or something like that. And you're like, this is most bizarre thing I've ever seen. I don't understand why I'm so scared or I'm so upset or excited for like, so that, that, that combination of, of someone who tells huge events in a very uh, non, non excitable way. And someone who tells, very small things in the most exciting way is, is a interesting marriage for, for, for stuff. And I'm, I'm not sure. Of course, I, I knew Barry Gifford's film, film noir books. And I think Bill, you might be right in that he's, 
he's maybe pushing, you know, the, those plot elements that come straight out of straight out of a lot of classic film noir are are coming from him. But um, a very interesting collaborative duo that um, I, I would love to see, of course, more more stuff. I wish I wish there were another like three seasons of Hotel Room and and things like that that were you know them able to to do these kind of quick riffs together. I thought Tricks from Hotel Room felt like a warm-up exercise for this a little bit. The uh, the one with Harry Dean Stanton as the uh, kind of sexually anguished man who's got his own fixation on being cuckolded and a mystery man shows up at the door uh, and then, you know, takes advantage of the woman that he's paid for, you know, the prostitute. And then, you know, we were dealing with like another dead wife story and then him being framed for the murder of this woman. And it's feels like, I mean, it has to tell it all through dialogue. It's, it's kind of stage bound in like a, like, like a play, but it's, it's eerie in its own, in own right. And it feels like maybe that, that kind of gets the engine revving for Lost Highway. I want to ask though, if when I think about Lost Highway, I think about a film that comes in the wake of Pulp Fiction and it feels like in a way they're bringing Lynch back to take advantage of this new landscape that is the post Pulp Fiction landscape. And this is going to be the guy that created this whole kind of, 90s cult movie kind of landscape in a way, him and the Coens. And now they're both going to benefit from this greater acceptance for like weird offbeat crime independent film. And so you have a lot more kind of money behind this. You have this crazy all-star cast. I mean, even the bit parts are played by alternative rock musicians like Henry Rollins or Marilyn Manson. Like everything is meant to be big. I remember I knew a guy who ran the website for the group Coil. I was a huge Coil fanatic at the time, the uh, industrial act. And Peter Christofferson collaborates with Trent Reznor on one of the kind of more drone soundscape pieces on this. But Trent Reznor was trying to interest David Lynch in using Coil on the soundtrack. And I know Henry Rollins was playing the band Suicide for him. And Lynch just was like, nope, it's got to be big. We want this big. And he wanted Bowie, Manson, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins. He wanted big acts. He wanted big stars. He wanted a big movie. And I don't know, like, if he thought of this as, like, a commercial kind of minded thing. Like, he wanted to have, like, a huge hit. And this was the film he came up with to have that huge hit. But I just think it's so peculiar that would have been one of his most obscure narratives up until that point was thought of as if not like a concession to the mainstream, at least gunning for like a bigger hit than, than his other movies and being like the low, the least successful of his movies up until that point, even fire walk with me was a more successful movie commercially. And Dune is still the biggest one, <laughs> you know, for all of its bad reputation, it still towers over all the others. Do you remember, Mike, I know you've seen Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Do you remember thinking when Lost Highway came out that it was part of any kind of, Tarantino era zeitgeist, or am I imagining that from 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 my perspective at that age? I don't think you are, especially the casting of Patricia Arquette, because I see there being definitely a dotted line with you know Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, and having True Romance in there, and having her as Alabama, and then having her in here as the many faces of Patricia Arquette. I mean, I think I kind of fell in love with her either with Prayer of the Roller Boys or holy matrimony or true romance. And so seeing her in lost highway was just like, Oh great. I get to look at Patricia Arquette again. And so much of Patricia Arquette as both screen time and how much she is nude in the film. I mean, my buddy Mike and I, we would laugh like crazy. We would just start 
singing that Rammstein song or, or speaking in fake German, thinking of that porn film that's on the wall. And I love the porn film that they're showing that she looks like she's very much in distress at first, but then after they help murder Andy, then it's like, Oh no, she's actually having a really good time. It looks like she's really enjoying this. So, but just when. When that German starts so ponderously and she's there getting fucked like crazy, it's like, okay, this is kind of funny and kind of upsetting all at the same time. Man sieht ihn um die Kirche schleichen. Seit einem Jahr ist er allein. Die Trauer nahm ihm alle Sinne. Pulp Fiction, a lot of people will say that it's neo-noir. I'm not sure how much I agree with that. But yeah, I can definitely see this writing. You know, we talked in the Mad Dog Time episode a few months ago about how there were all of these Tarantino clones. I can't see this being a clone, but I definitely see it writing a little bit of that last few feet of wave that came after that 94 film. If there's any connection to Pulp Fiction, just like from a marketing point of view or, you know, trying to cash in on on that, that zeitgeist, which I don't, wouldn't put, you know, that on, on Gifford or, or, or Lynch, but certainly as trying to sell the film and we can slip it in to this, you know, people, there's an appetite for that. I'd say it's probably with the, the elliptical timeline stuff. I mean, I Remember, I mean, I, I saw Pulp Fiction three times the first week it came out. You know, I loved it, but but I was never confused about timeline stuff. But I remember it being a big a big deal. People's collective minds were kind of blown that that it wasn't entirely linear storytelling, and so I can see that that aspect of it being something because that would get played with a lot and usually done pretty poorly or just unnecessarily. In, in kind of cheap ways. But a couple of films that came out that I felt I would tie this to another film, I should say, that came out in that sort of post Tarantino, post Pulp Fiction wave that I felt almost were pushing against the pushing against it. Part of that resisting it would be this one with its this one and, and Christopher McQuarrie's Way of the Gun, where McQuarrie comes in on the the, the success of usual suspects and everybody loves the script and the dialogue and, and that's what they want from him. And both lost highway and way of the gun come out and they're, they're not talky films. You know, that this was the time of the talky criminal and the, all that stuff. And they're pretty self-conscious. I think in way of the gun is that, no, I'm not going to give you a talky talky movie. There's not going to be a lot of quips and things like that. It's very much, visual and and of course lynch is like that all the time but i do think that this this slips in to that moment in pop culture history where maybe a producer wanted this to, to really ride the wave that was happening but i do want to talk some just about about lynch in general but but it's it's definitely in lost highway that the relationship he has to dialogue to to spoken words to the way people communicate in his films verbally is so stilted and so, I mean, you know, I think that's a big resistance to a lot of his stuff is just the way people speak. But I got to say, watching 
all this stuff back to back to back to back the last couple of weeks. And my wife being there for a lot of it, she was like, Oh my God, this is like talking to you. About, <laughs> she's, she's like, you know, you can't, you know, maybe this is why you like David Lynch so much is because you really got to nail down what people mean when they talk to you and you got to rehash these very minute points, things that everybody else knows exactly what they mean, but you get extremely tripped up on before I respond. Let me understand exactly what you mean. And, and, um, this was the first time I'd ever seen, um, on the air, the, uh, the Mark Frost, David Lynch, uh, sitcom. And I thought it was delightful because I, I was really enjoying it. It was the first time, of course, I've seen Twin Peaks many times and, and the Lucy Moran character always having to over explain what line the phone call is on and things like that. But, so this was all just kind of fresh material in that same way. But, uh, that's just something I really respond to in David Lynch, apparently watching it all at once and having my wife comment on, this is what it's like talking to you. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like, oh, maybe. Maybe that's maybe that's the case. Maybe that's why there's something to me responding on a, a gut level to him early on. Maybe that had something to do with it. Well, let's talk about some of that dialogue because you're talking about Pulp Fiction earlier. And I think the most – I don't even want to say that the scene is Tarantino-esque, but the most hilarious part of this movie for me is Mr. Eddie's driving school. And when he is beating the shit out of Greg Travis and telling him the rules of the road. And if you were to just read the dialogue, it could sound like a father lecturing a son. And then the way that Loja delivers it, and especially the way he delivers it with his fists, it's like, okay, this is fucking hilarious to see this violence, this outburst of violence and this lecture from this old man talking about how many feet behind your car you have to be in order to stop safely. Don't you! Fucking tailgate! Tell him you won't tailgate. I won't ever... Do you know how many fucking car lengths it takes to stop a car at 35 miles an hour? Six fucking car lengths! That's 106 fucking feet, mister! If I had to stop suddenly, you would have hit me! I want you to get a fucking driver's manual. I want you to study that motherfucker. And I want you to pay the goddamn rules. 50 fucking thousand people were killed on the highway last year because of fucking assholes like you. Tell me you're going to get a manual. Get a manual. I love the little thing from Richard Pryor where he's talking about the 10 mechanics and seven of them will say this thing. Three of them might say this other thing. You might find one who says that and then he wants to talk to the other two. I mean, that whole little bit is, is great. Then of course the mystery man and that whole scene at the party is fucking amazing. You know, that is, like I said, the thing that I still go back to look at the dialogue or listen to the dialogue between Fred and Renee, especially at the beginning of the film, and how slow and awkward that is. You don't mind that I'm not coming to the club tonight? What are you going to do? Stay home. Read. Read.
Read. Read what? It's nice to know I can still make you laugh. I like to laugh, Fred. You can wake me up when you get home if you want to. And just all of the pauses that they have. And I love that because their relationship is in trouble. And to hear them speak to one another, it's like he is walking on eggs around her and trying to figure her out. I mean, the biggest mystery of this film, it's not why he becomes Balthazar Getty. It is how do you understand a woman? And Fred has no fucking idea how to understand Renee. He wants her in the worst way. In as Pete, he tells Alice how much he wants her. And she eventually says, you'll never have me. And that's really what sets him back to Fred. And Fred just, yeah, he never understands what's going on with her. He cannot figure her out. And really that's the biggest problem for him And eventually, that's what ends up, I think, driving him to murder her. I also thought of Tarantino with Mr. Eddie's road rage incident. And I think that's partly because of the absurdity of a guy in a suit, like a gangster, saying these words – just the, the, the disconnect between the imagery of a crime scene and what he's talking about with the car lengths and everything, that specificity, that does remind you maybe of like gangsters on a hit, but they're talking about the nature of pilots or something, you know, television pilots. So that maybe is what makes it think of Tarantino. But if, if anyone has seen the episode of Twin Peaks where Lynch has a real agenda with hospital food and keeps bringing it up throughout the episode at how terrible it is, this is just an echo of that kind of very specific political filmmaker of David Lynch, you know, you know, coming out again in that in that scene. But the the, the scenes between Fred and Renee in the house, I know that um, was it Peter Deming, the DP on this, said that when they were doing the uh, like the initial blocking for the scene, and he heard like them rehearsing it, they changed the entire lighting scheme to be more dramatic and eerie because on the page maybe didn't register as tense as it really plays out. And I remember the first time seeing it, just thinking like, because I was used to the, you know, burst of cacophony in Wild at Heart and Fire Walk With Me as being the last Lynch films, even though Hotel Room kind of sets the stage for something a little bit more, you know, restrained and low key. So I was taken aback by like, oh, just like, this is just so controlled and menacing. I always thought, that, I mean, I like the entire film, but that Fred Madison portion and maybe the first half hour or so always struck me as the greatest Lynch ever got, you know, to this day. I think that's the most perfectly contained piece of filmmaking. As much as I love things that come before and after, I mean, I think that's just a perfect short film that then has to be the thing that, that drives all of the Balthazar Getty stuff that I think has always been a little bit more kind of controversial among people I know. Like some people you know, talk about recasting him or just think that entire section doesn't quite work or it's just – too top-heavy because it has to follow that perfectly tense, eerie half hour that it's just going to feel more conventional. And then, you know, even when they bring Fred Madison back, it's like spinning off out of control. It never really recaptures that quiet tension 
by design, but I mean, I think that that it makes such an impact. You know, the way that words are kind of just boiled down to just suspicion and defensiveness and defensive body language. Like when the tapes arrive and she thinks they could be porno tapes. And so she's braced for a violent conflict in all those scenes. I think when she's talking to the police and he's comforting her, it's the only time they have any kind of non-hostile kind of, you know, rapport with each other. But every, every other scene, it's always he's asking questions and it's just that, that insecure, paranoid kind of guy. I've, known versions of that like character in my life many times. And I think when we see the version of, of our character in red that I mentioned, you know, um, when, when Pete sees her in the hall. Did you want to talk to me? Huh? Did you want to ask me? when he she's taunting him saying don't you want to ask me why like it's it's making fun of that questioning impulse in men so i always see that now as one of the things that's poking at the fred madison in his head <laughs> like you know that that guy that's always asking questions accusatorily but yeah it's it's perfectly sustained that entire sequence because everything is hostile in him even even the way he talks about video cameras it's so there's a, there's an attitude to it. I like to remember things my own way. That could be the tagline for this film. Reading some about Lost Highway recently, and and it seems to be brought up a lot that you know one thing that's missing from this that that is present in a lot of Lynch stuff is uh, humor. There's really not any humor here, and I I thought God, this is this movie is hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I remember just gasping both with you know cringing shock but also this is the funniest thing i ever saw when andy dies on the coffee table i mean thought about coffee tables all my life as hazards <laughs> and you know and when i saw it it was like thank you it was almost like me giving my robert loja roadside driving safety trains like this is what happens when you make coffee tables like this, this is why you don't chase your brother around the coffee table. This is watching Twin Peaks again and watching on the air and, and some of the, the short films, Cowboy and the Frenchman and things like that. It's like, okay, the difference between his humor and his really upsetting, scary stuff is not, is not that big a, a gulf. It's just someone always being wrong. Like, no, that's not how this is supposed to go. <laughs> No, that's, that's not where this is. Yeah. This is, that's not how you use that. That's not what we say at this point. That's not, you know, there's just this. And, and, and I can understand why like on the air was not a big hit and, and got canceled, but, but I was just rolling watching that after watching all this other stuff. Cause like, no, this is perfectly, this is exactly my kind of humor right now. <laughs> just saying, no, this, that's wrong. That's not what I meant. That's not how this goes. And I, and I thought, yeah, the Lost Highway is full of that. Shit. That wife killer's looking pretty fucked up. Which one? <laughs> 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 you 
Yes, a lot of a lot of funny lines. It's all the stuff with the detectives was is all played for comedy. As soon as they showed up, the first time I saw it opening night, I remember them getting laughed. Just the way the guys like kind of sp- kind of man spreading on the couch and just like even just like it's what we do, <laughs> like that it delivered so deadpan. I think because there's so much cop humor in Twin Peaks. I mean, maybe you know, as soon as they showed up, oh, Lynch is doing more of this, but it's it's still funny. I mean. Yeah, and Richard Pryor, I think it's funny. And I mean, there's, there's, there's line throughout, but I know that Lynch had said in some interview, or maybe in the book, that like humor was one thing they were cutting down, you know, intentionally when they were writing the script because they didn't really see it as that funny a story. And so the fact that there's as much humor that we can all kind of recount, I mean, it, it's just, he's the funny filmmaker, even when he's trying to be scary. I mean, it's just built into the DNA of how he directs scenes. And I'm sorry, but at this point in his career, when Gary Busey is being so serious. Oh my God. I know I probably shouldn't be laughing at that, but he being so serious and that whole thing of like him and the wife character, the way that they dress identically when they come into the, the, I think it's the police station or whatever to pick up Pete and they both walk in and they both take off their sunglasses at the same time. I was dying laughing and yeah, just Busey, emoting the way that he does i thought was hilarious it's one thing that that also came up in, in reading about lynch and, and lost highway uh, is that um how hysterical his his characters often get on screen that's just kind of losing their shit crying but that's not something that happens in, in lost highway really but that moment with gary Busey kind of welling up and not saying anything it is not reach near the hysterics that would happen every 10 minutes on Twin Peaks. But yeah, it, it was kind of interesting uh, to me to think that, that that is one element that is almost almost not present in, in Lost Highway compared to his other, his other work. I tried watching Twin Peaks with my wife, and she could not take Mrs. Palmer. Just the way that Grace Zabritsky would burst out in tears or screams. She was just like, oh my God, shut this woman up. <laughs> I'm like, oh, if you don't like this, you're probably not going to like the rest of the series. Maybe we shouldn't watch it. One thing that I remember the first time I saw it that struck me was how it's the first one set in a modern city of all of Lynch's films. I mean, has that kind of blurring of it's 90s, but it's also got some 40s. It's also got some 50s, the way that... Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks have that 50s, 80s kind of thing. But it felt like there are cell phones. There's, they're listening to popular music. Like it's, it's not quite the self-contained, like small towns of Blue Velvet or Twin Peaks or like the, the different historical periods of Elephant Man or Dune with the abstraction of Eraserhead. Like it was the first slightly grounded world Lynch ever worked in. And it, it kind of, I mean, I think now it's thought of as the beginning of an, an LA trilogy of like films that are set around film business and noir plots and like sexual corruption, like on the outskirts of the film industry. Like here it's porn in Mulholland Drive. It's sexual corruption of, of innocent young women coming to town. And you know, there's, there's the kind of intimations of prostitution on the edge of the movie industry in Inland Empire. Like Lynch clearly has mixed feelings about Hollywood that he's working through in the LA trilogy films, but. Would have never occurred to me at the time that it would have been setting the stage for companion films. It felt like way to sum up the earlier films, but in a new construction when it came out. But now it almost seems like the beginning of the new approach that he carries for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. What there's that weird mix of new and old, like with 
Mulholland Drive, there's the, the musical number, you know, which is a throwback. The, the movie that they're shooting is very much a 1950s film. There's even the musical number in Inland Empire. And that was what I found interesting about this film, too, when it comes to the music. And we, we touched a little bit on the music before, is that this one doesn't really have a musical number. You know, in so many of his other films, the movie will kind of stop dead. Dune is an exception and Elephant Man, but really from Eraserhead, there's a one in Wild at Heart for sure, where there's the Elvis song. And this one doesn't have that moment of just stopping the movie and having a musical number. The way that he plays with music in this, I find very fascinating. Starting it off with the David Bowie music. I found the amount of covers to be kind of interesting too. And I want to say that a lot of the covers happen when Pete is on screen. So it's kind of a little bit of a nod as far as this isn't the real Fred, but it's a close facsimile. So you've got the, I put a spell on you. Was this mortal coil? Was that a cover as well? That's I want to say. And this magic moment is also a cover. The use of this magic moment is. Absolutely fucking fantastic. I love when that happens and just how the whole movie stops. And then you have that mix too of fifties when it comes to Alice's hairstyle and especially Renee's hairstyle. Very, very Betty Page. But you were talking about Los Angeles in this modern setting and the home of Fred and Renee. It's almost too modern. It's kind of funny that it's all David Lynch furniture in there, which gives it a little bit of a twist, but their home from the outside, especially when you look at it in those VHS tapes, it kind of reminds me of a prison. Just the whole idea of the very long windows that are there, and I don't think that I'm reading too much into it, because especially you get that echoed shot of Fred there looking up and seeing the cop over him if through the skylight. And then you get almost the exact same shot later on when he's in prison and looking up through the bars again. And it's like, I like when he has those uh, repeated images. And we see that a few times too with Renee and Alice and their, the close up of their mouths when they're talking on the phone. And I love how all the phones are kind of a throwback too, especially, you know, there's the cell phone, like you said, especially that fucking honking big old Gordon Gecko cell phone, but the old school phones and how important phones are to this film. I think that kind of plays a little bit too the idea of transmission also through the, the whole idea of electricity. And that's something very, very twin peaks as well. And even again, going all the way back to Eraserhead, when the light gets really bright and burns out, electricity has always been so important. But this whole idea of, you know, when the lights start flickering and he becomes Pete or goes back to being Fred, I mean, there's always that hint of danger through electricity. I want to also just give a, a shout out to Patricia Norris of, the, of this film because she was the production designer on all of Lynch's films from Blue Velvet up through Lost Highway and also the costume designer for everything from Elephant Man up through, I think, Straight Story except for Dune. And uh, she designed all of the, you know, the, the, the interiors of the Fred Madison house and the jail cells and everything. And, and it just, it's, it's such a remarkable looking film just in terms of design. I think this is the film that he really had the most money to play with in like taking the time to design the world, taking the time to edit it for months and months and months. Like he had the luxury of a big budget 
and I think that it really kind of shows up on screen. I think one of the great tragedies about Lost Highway is that the use of shadow in this is so bold that home video has never really been able to recapture it. The way that Fred moves in and out of the dark spaces of that house on film is, uh, you know, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in movies. This feels like digitally, it's it's such a such a struggle for them to ever really capture without it blocking up. That if if anyone has only ever seen it on home video, if it ever comes back in a repertory context, it's it's worth it just for that that aspect alone. I think even more than the sound design, which is you know always great with his films, but the, visually, I think that this is the trickiest one to recapture on home video. I completely agree, and I'm glad that all of us saw it on at the theater because. It was such an experience. And Fred, when he goes to explore some of the hallways, and there's that moment where I think he's looking at himself in a mirror because you can see the buttons on his jacket change. But it, there are moments where it's like, what am I looking at? And I get that a lot more on video than I do, than I did at the theater because I could see that there were things there. And I completely agree with you that film is really the best way to see this. They have yet to crack the code when it comes to showing this in a great way. Talking about repeated motifs and lynch work, that it is essentially not just that hallway, but that house is really kind of the red room of this. It's got the red curtains and everything. It's got the curtains. It is the place where the unexplicable happens. It is the place where the... Mystery Man first appears, you know, on the face of Renee. Actually, that moment is probably my favorite, most impactful jump scare of all time. It it gets me now even more than Exorcist 3. And the like. that moment made my heart absolutely drop out of my body when I was in the theater. And, and it still does. I You know, that great sound design of the horns there and... and and it's one that the more I look at it, the more troubling it becomes. You know, sometimes you look at these things and they, uh, you, you pick it apart, you see the trick of how they produced it or something, and, and it loses some, some mystery or something. But this one, I've just stared at it and stared at it, and it's extremely troubling. And it's so weird, too, with that shock moment that you're talking about, because he is telling her, I had a dream. And he starts to go into the dream, and it feels like, he sees the face of the mystery man that he is has been telling her about the dream. It's like he should be out of the dream by then. So it's like that is, to go back to Dune, that's a waking dream. You know, it's not part of the dream that he was just sharing. It becomes, it's after it. So it's like we should have been shocked already and then no, we're out of it. But no, we're, maybe we're in it, maybe we're not. I really do appreciate that. And I also appreciate too, I know some people had trouble with some of the special effects for Twin Peaks The Return, you know, some of the the way that the Dale Cooper's head would come off and there'd be fire or just blackness or some of these things or the big when Mrs. Palmer pulls her face off and there's the big smiling face underneath there. I kind of like that Lynch isn't doing these photo real special effects that he's just doing these kind of like, OK, cut out. You know, the, the face of Robert Blake and put it into that black area. It looks kind of cheesy, but I really appreciate it. 
The special effects in this are sometimes like very old-fashioned in-camera effects. I think of also the scene when he's transformed into Pete, and it's just this flickering white shape that I think is... I think they just took the lens off the camera. They did something very simple to achieve this like weird abstraction, which just hangs out in the corner of the frame for what feels like a really long time. And that's your transformation scene. It's so <laughs> ambiguous as to what you're seeing, but so many of the great effects in this are achieved in like very old fashioned kind of ways. I mean, you have the digital editing, especially like at the end when the, when Fred Madison is transforming in the car, like you have things that are the cutting edge of late nineties filmmaking, but yeah, some of the greatest imagery in this is like something very, you know, they could have done it in the fifties, you know, in a good way, I think. When Pete is walking down the hallway and the images are stretching out and it's like, okay, we're like Alice slash Renee inside of that room 26. It's just. You know, very blurry around her as she's getting plowed again with the red wig. And then the top of the screen is kind of warped. And it's like, yeah, I don't know how they did that, but it, it works. It works really well. Not to get too much into the return, Twin Peaks, the return. But as you were talking about the special effects in that one looking very different, I do think it's interesting watching the sort of last two generations, three generations worth of auteurs encounter new technology in filmmaking and what they're doing with it. And some of them, it comes off kind of embarrassingly <laughs> bad. Like, Oh, you did not make that leap gracefully. And, and, but, but somebody like, I really actually enjoyed that about the return. And it was even there in, in inland empire. Like there was that scene where Laura Dern's head becomes a balloon or something and, and floats away. And it, you know, it did not look, it was a very now slash then effect that that wasn't an embarrassment. You know, it was like, no, this is new. This is new technology. Why would we, you know, try to replicate an old, an old thing with it? And I, I think that speaks to his character as much as there's always a, uh, often rather a, um, you know, throwbacks in, in, in nostalgia in the costume design or, or some of the, the music choices, things like that. I, I do think he's a pretty relentlessly modern filmmaker. And, and um, I, I do think that, uh, you know, that what we saw in the return is probably, you know, who he's always been, but now there's, there was just different tools, but um, yeah, Lost Highway's fantastic example of that treating him as a modern, not a bill as you were, talking about the the throwback feeling of some of his small time films this is very small town films rather this is this is a big city film and he continued to make a few but uh yeah the the look and, and, and feel of it is is at once classic and moving forward at the same time we talk about twin peaks the return versus this what they share in common lost highway and that are acknowledgement of like popular music of the day and loved about Twin Peaks the Return is how he just always built it in to return to the to the roadhouse for like another musical number to take us out. And sometimes the music, you know, was was fairly contemporary up to the moment stuff. Like he was paying attention to what was going on. He's somebody that tries to keep up with what's going on like in youth culture. And I always thought with this one that you know, when I think about that soundtrack, I think like he's a guy that took stock of like, who likes my movies? Young people, young people that like alternative rock. Maybe I should make something that, I don't think he's catering to that audience, but he's 
he's conscious of like, you know, the kind of hot topic generation that had blue velvet and eraser head t-shirts. And this is a film, you know, for them, he's not making it for film comment or the New York film festival or cinephiles in France or whatever. He's making it for young people. And Twin Peaks, the return has a little bit of that too, but it, it's not quite as aggressive. This, this feels the most, I mean, cause I think of even like the, like if you compare it to the music in Wild at Heart, and Wild at Heart is also a film where he's using heavy metal as a punctuation mark for certain scenes and the power mod, the power mad, you know, thrash metal stuff. But that thrash metal in Wild at Heart is part of a really diverse tapestry of jazz and twangy guitar and classical music. And it's every genre seemingly. This all feels like it's either kind of warm dub influence kind of things like Angela Badalamente pushing his quasi jazz kind of scoring from Twin Peaks further and making it sexier and making it kind of keep up with what Barry Adamson's also bringing to it. Like it's, it's not quite hip hop, but it's, it's more rhythmic than Lynch soundtracks. And then that warmth and sexiness is kind of contrasted by like very cold digital kind of heavy rock music primarily, or like a typically chilly smashing pumpkin synth pop. Like everything, it, like it's, it's unusually electronic sounding Bowie, unusually electronic sounding Smashing Pumpkins. Like it's very cold in a way that he backs off from that in the other films. Like Inland Empire and Mulholland Drive aren't quite as electronic influenced. When, when this came out, I was afraid like, oh, it's going to date the movie in a real awkward way, but I actually find that it's more of an interesting time capsule and it isn't as distracting as I feared it might be, you know, and maybe that's just my age, because it doesn't feel like that weird to me when Rammstein comes in. <laughs> but yeah, it puts a date on the film, but that isn't the flaw that I, th- I was afraid it would be at the time. I think the most off-putting part for me is when Marilyn Manson actually shows up in person at the end. I mean, it is nice to see him get murdered, but yeah. <laughs> at the same time, even in 97, I was like, oh, okay. And I was still watching it. I'm just like, yeah, that's a shame that he's in here. I, I don't know how they managed to hook up with him, but at least it was a snuff film. You know, it goes from smut to snuff very quickly. Inland Empire's got almost like an entire music video in it with the Beck song. I thought, uh, it's like, man, I wonder if that ever played on MTV. Probably not. Yeah, you're right. Lost Highway doesn't have that in it. We were talking about the transfer, and I find it a real shame that when it comes to the releases of this, I mean, it took a long freaking time for it to come out on DVD, and it took a long time for it to come out on Blu-ray, at least here in the States. And if you go out, dvdbeaver.com, one of my favorite websites, if you look at the comparisons of all of the releases of Lost Highway on DVD and Blu-ray, Every time it gets released in the United States, it's the most bare-bone version. Special features, none. For the Universal version that was released on DVD, and then for the Kino version that was released just recently, no special features. But you go to any other country, you go to France, Australia, especially France, and you're going to get all of these extras on the disc, and it's like pretty much the same extras every single time, but it's like, oh, for God's sakes, guys, why couldn't you at least get the preview? There's not even a preview for it on the, the Kino disc. There's nothing. It's like they just 
took everything just completely stripped off. And I know that there was a problem. There was a commentary track that was supposed to be out there for the Kino disc. And I think Lynch put his foot down and said, nope, get rid of it. I don't want any commentary on this disc. Thank goodness. I think Universal still owns the rights for Dune. So I got to have my commentary out there. But man, it's just like, I don't know if he then said, take everything off because there's nothing. There's no interviews with him. There's no behind the scenes footage. All that stuff, though, is on like the MK2 disc. It's like, all right, thanks a lot. The transfer looks nice, but there's nothing there to, you know, I still buy stuff for extras a lot of times, and there's nothing there to sweeten the pot. I've interviewed the two people that contributed extras that got cut from that, because Nick Pinkerton also wrote the booklet essay as well, you know, and Tim on my show also. And the, you know, and I've interviewed Susan Aristegui, who produces all the Lynch Criterion discs. And I get the impression that Lynch is really super particular when it comes to home video treatment. I remember back in the early DVD days, Anchor Bay had Wild at Heart lined up to do the X-rated cut, and they were waiting for Lynch's involvement, and he just waited them out until they lost the rights, I think. And I think with Kino Lorber, I could be wrong. I I, Lynch has never said this. I feel like he wanted Criterion to do it. He wanted a new transfer. And when he didn't get his way, he got them to cut their extras and then he shit-talked them on Twitter. When Criterion had Eraserhead the first time around, I guess it leaked that it was like coming before he'd really signed the dotted line and he pulled it away from them for like 10 years because, you know, he's just real protective and real particular. And I think with home video, he also... Susan Aristegui would not confirm this. This is my opinion, is that he does not really allow critical interpretations of the films, like no like analytical commentaries, no analytical essays. I think even just things that really get you too far behind the curtain as far as like how these things are achieved, the magic tricks, the dispelling the mystery, not a fan of it. And so when they his involvement he likes things a certain way as far as like the kind of information you get. It's not quite as extreme as like Woody Allen, but it, you know, it is a case where I think that, and I hate saying this, Kubrick was the same way. Like if home video is still around when Lynch is not, you will probably have much different treatment on home video for these films. They won't have like, you know, his involvement in, in the documentary featurettes and such. But I think when trying to work with him, there's a lot of, tying of hands, you know, in terms of what they can do. And Kino Lorber, I feel bad for them because I think that they regret. And he's not the only filmmaker that's like that. Because the films were never that commercially big films. Like Dune is actually an exception. Dune's always been treated well on home video. Like it's always it's always out on DVD when DVDs come out. You know, um, Lost Highway took a long time. I mean, in this country, we still don't have the straight story. <laughs> we don't have... I mean, beyond a hotel room and, and uh, on the on the air. I mean, we only just got Elephant Man. Like, was it last year? I mean, <laughs> his home video treatment is a mixture of the films don't make a lot of money and they're owned by big studios. And Lynch himself is uh, a force to deal with in these matters. I just want a DVD release with the Robert Lojo Orange Juice commercial on it. That's that's the extra that I'm really holding out for because the YouTube video is not not good enough i want it pristine you want a 4k transfer of that orange juice video i really do and i want commentary and and all of that because i'm not sure that that commercial happens which is the greatest commercial ever without lost highway try some new minute made orange tangerine it's got calcium and i'm not drinking it 
Oh, no, it's sweet. You like it. I don't believe you. Well, then who would you believe? I don't know. Robert Loja? Oh, Robert Loja. Billy, your mother's right. Your Minute Maid orange tangerine tastes great. It's got as much calcium as milk. If you say so, Mr. Loja. Yeah. This is great. Enjoy your breakfast. New Minute Maid orange tangerine with calcium. Yeah. Well, I wonder if, because I was complaining before we got on air, I was complaining about Tim Lucas's commentary that was cut from the Lost Highway disc, I wonder if he was told not to get anywhere near interpretation because all he does is basically recap what's on screen and then talk about the actors and kind of read their IMDb credits because it's like, why am I even listening to this? Like, I don't care who was in what movie five years ago. It's like, all right, great. Cause I'm, you know, you know me, I love good interpretation of things. So I'm glad that there's so much written scholarship about this. I mean, I think I put together like 800 pages, 600 pages worth of stuff. It was so big. I had to break up the PDF into three chunks in order to send it to myself and put it out on the Dropbox. There's a lot, a lot of stuff out there. And it's kind of funny because at least one of those, there's a few books called Puzzle Films, and this one was in the first Puzzle Film book, and I'm just like, I don't find it that puzzling. I don't think you guys do either. I mean, it's kind of straightforward, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that's how Lynch always said it. Lynch never understood why anyone found it confusing. He felt like it was totally apparent what happened in it. And I think that, like, I know that, was it Sibby 2000? Was not even the first financiers that he talked to about doing this, but the first people that were willing to do it, I mean, they wanted more clarity, you know, as to, like, how, how did this guy turn into that guy? <laughs> and Lynch was like, well, I mean, I don't know what to tell you if it's not completely obvious. From the beginning, this was like a heavily scrutinized film. I remember there being like one book from like a French writer that was just like a, a, a full, full on like psychoanalytic breakdown of Lost Highway. I mean, it's, it's always been one that like critics and writers have, have gra- gravitated towards picking apart. I mean, all of Lynch's films. I mean, I got like two shelves full of books on David Lynch, even though he's never had like a film that made half as much money as like Lethal Weapon. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, there's, the kind of people that write books on film have always gravitated towards David Lynch, like, you know, even if the films themselves are, you know, marginally penetrating the popular consciousness. I appreciate, though, that there's not an official version. I think if you had a commentary track on, on a film like this for posterity's sake and things like that, that that would really maybe limit the scope of the way it's talked about. And I think if you're going to have like one commentary, you got to have a half dozen anyway you know because i think the way i've read the film for years and years and years is i think a legitimate reading but i I think if if i've got that then you also maybe need to consider that well maybe fred and pete you know physically share the same body for a while and that they are two different you know that, that that's how pete's fingerprints are all over andy's apartment and the cops can say Pete and they can say, and that's Fred Madison's wife in the photo. And, you know, if my, my general overall take is, is, is the, the one that's on the commentary, then, then I think that that's probably limiting in a way that that's not helpful to people. So I'm glad there's a lot of discussion, a lot of books and a lot of different, you know, theories. I do think that it's one that, that can be written about. And, and discussed for for ages and and maybe he's really wise in 
not allowing a commentary track or, or things like that on it for that reason. Maybe, maybe for posterity, it's best. I would never want to hear Lynch talk about one of his films. I want to hear him talk about ducks and eyes and things like that. I don't want to hear him talk about his movies specifically. I want to hear him talk about how much he loves watching movies on his iPhone. Now, if you're playing the movie on a telephone, you will never in a trillion years experience the film. You'll think you have experienced it, but you'll be <clears throat> cheated. It's a, such a sadness that you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone. Get real. You know, those are the things that I want to hear about. With all of that scholarship about this film, there was nothing that I read other than occasionally like an error when they would say this happens. And it's like, well, actually, that doesn't happen. You know, you're kind of misremembering it. Other than that, it's like everything that people wrote. I was like, okay, yeah, I can see that. That's your interpretation. This is an interesting interpretation. Okay. So like you even talking about how Pete's fingerprints are on things. And it's like the way that Pete's family talks about how that night because Pete is a fully realized person and somehow becomes basically, yeah, like a vehicle for Fred. You know, it's like we never see the vehicle that's driving down the road in those opening credits, right? It's like he's a vehicle basically for Fred to drive around. It's kind of like uh, Wonder Woman 84, right? With Chris Pine coming back into that poor guy's body and Diana Prince raping him. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, Pete's just along for the ride and now embroiled in this mystery. Doesn't really make sense that Alice and Renee are really the same person and Mr. Eddie and Dick Laurent, though that could be a crime alias type of thing. But yeah, I love what you're saying with that. And there's nothing that I've read on this really where I'm just like, yeah, you're fucking crazy, man. Why are you even saying these things? Because I love that these movies are kind of open for interpretation. I love that he's giving you all of these things as far as like, you know, hey, you want to talk about, you know, I talked about how Twin Peaks, you know, Twin, right in the name of the show, how there's all of those doubles, like the little old man and the giant or the arm and, and Mike and all these kind of things or the Mike who's in Twin Peaks and the Mike who's at the Black Lodge. You know, I love that all the cops come in pairs, the bodyguards come in pairs. I talked about Pete's parents and the way that they dress alike. You know, it's just like. All of those doubles, I just love that he's constantly like doubling things up on us. And it's great. And I love how Pete is, what is it? He gets more pussy than a toilet seat versus Fred, who the only time we see him having sex, he's an abject failure. I love that, that he becomes that super fuck machine because that's what he wants to be. I would, I would say we actually get two sex scenes. We get the pathetic impotence and we get the saxophone scene which i think counts as <laughs> saxophone sex scene saxophone right sorry buddy no sex before i fight not to, to get too cute about it but but the way you're talking about reading everybody's interpretations and, and you know in your mind correcting them on some things that clearly they like to remember things their own way and it's just like fred does and what does he hate Fred hates video cameras. 
And what does the, the mystery man have? He's got that video camera. And not only does he have a camera, it's a damn surveillance camera. It's, it is shitty quality pictures, but there's no tricking these pictures. There's no, this is just documentary. Here's what happens. And he hates that. He doesn't, he, he hates that. And I, I think maybe Lynch hates it too. I don't know. Um, that, that once it's on there, it's on that fucking, thing that he's chasing you around with it's set in stone that's just the way it was and he's running from that the whole time he's running from you know he's starting to get the videotapes and they they upset him and they should because there's no arguing with what's on the tape what's so funny about those tapes also is the angle from which they're shot because they're always shot from a very unnaturally high floating perspective that they're not like a man walking with the camera like they are like like a spirit has 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 has, has taped them and i like that even when the night of we assume is the murder you have two shadows you know and one is kind of floating behind him but you never have any kind of gimmicky imagery that could go wrong of like a floating mystery man like they don't try to literalize it it's just you have to put the pieces together based on the evidence and i like that that's they don't like, they have like the detectives looking through the, the skyline, like, you know, skylight, like, how is he getting these, he's, these angles? But they never clarify how it's happening. It's just your, your imagination fills in the blanks as to how that's being recorded. Just to touch on the interpretation part that you were saying earlier, for, for me, when I watch it, it's totally different for me than how I will talk about it if I'm explaining what it is, because I'll explain like, oh, it's a metaphor for a guy that's committed this crime and he's, you know, the lies he's telling himself. When I'm watching it, I'm watching a film about a guy that transformed into another guy, <laughs> like, and I'm just taking it literally. You know, I can explain it in a way that's rational, the same way I can explain Mulholland Drive in a rational way, but it doesn't play rationally as I'm watching it ever. I never think about it like Oh, it's this is what it means. Like ever, I just I just take it from moment to moment, and it's just all really happening. Try to explain the mystery man. You know, the mystery man who can be in two places at the same time. Another twinning type image. You know, you talked about how he's the angel of death, and for me, he's very much a vampire. That whole idea of you know, it's not my custom to be where I'm not invited. I'm like, okay, sounds like I have how you have to invite vampires into your house, and it's like how long. Have you known this guy, Fred? And that he said, you know, we've met before. So that whole clue too, that this is a big old Mobius strip just going around forever and will never end. I love that kind of stuff. And I love that. Yeah. He's kind of the, uh, the moving force at the end. It's like, I forget about him coming back at the end of the film pretty much every single time I watch it. I always think, Oh yeah, he's there at the beginning and he doesn't come back, but no, he's a major player at the end of the film. And I love how. To your point, Jed, how he's like showing Mr. Eddie, you know, the video and then how the video then becomes a memory and we get to see the party where that movie was being shown at and then how suddenly it becomes, you know, after that is over, then it becomes Fred and the mystery man on the tape, you know, watching them through that device, you know, that, that kind of intermediary step of having the device in front of him, just like having that, that video camera on the mystery man's face. I know we talked a little bit about film noir before, and I don't think I'm crazy in thinking that the shack, and I'd call it a shack because feels like it should be a beach house, but I don't see any sort of water around it. But the shack that the mystery man is in where 
Alice disappears after they have sex in front of the the headlights when she tells Pete slash Fred, you know, you'll never have me. That to me is so kiss me deadly. And especially that we see the house exploded and then come back together. It feels like we're reversing the end of kiss me deadly. And apparently that wasn't in the script. And that was just because they were, you know, they weren't going to, they were going to just break down that location. And so Lynch famously said, well, do you have any dynamite? Like, do you have an explosion? Can we blow it up? You know, like he's a kid, you know, and then this explosion didn't quite, because they weren't prepared to really blow it up. They only could do so much with it, but just the explosion that they could get was so beautiful to his, you know, you know, visually to him that he, you know, made it like a recurring motif as far as like the implosion, you know, explosion kind of imagery of it. But it was something that was, yeah, because I thought of Kiss Me Deadly also. It seems like, you know, again, like Barry Gifford, you know, bringing in the noir references. But apparently that was just something that was a spontaneous, you know, decision. But it, yeah, no, it totally evokes Kiss Me Deadly in a, in a, in a big time way. I mean, I thought of like um when Pete Dayton is hearing Fred's music on the uh, on the radio and being tortured by total detour kind of, you know, kind of connection as well. You know, one thing, you know, when I, one thing I read when doing the reading for this, the film that he almost made before this was Love in Vain, um, Alan Greenberg's story about Robert Johnson, which would have been a radical departure for Lynch. But like, again, like musician protagonists, dying wives, a kind of deal with a mystery man in that it's like a devil man and like, you know, intense musical performances, kind of like the ones Fred Madison's playing at the beginning of Lost Highway. He had similar kind of like sweaty night nightclub musical kind of moments. I was just looking for kind of like did he take anything from that and bring it to his Barry Gifford project, which is what he made instead? And, uh, you know, cause that always makes me wonder, like, with the mystery man, like, is it a deal with the devil kind of situation in that? Because, you know, he's come to the house where he's invited to come. Is he doing the killing himself? I mean, it's kind of Fred's framing it in his mind, like, it's not me. It's this guy with the video camera that's doing all the murdering. But, you know, when he's looking at himself in the mirror, that shot you mentioned, it might, it reminds me of, I don't want to spoil the killer in Twin Peaks, but like, you know, a similar shot, you know, of the guy looking at, you know, the house, you know, looking at, you know, looking at himself in the mirror before committing the murder and revealing their identity. I just feel like that's probably the same beat, you know, replayed. Yeah, I think the mystery man, there's, is a Lynchian figure that, I mean, you know, he's, it's kind of the same thing as the lady in the radiator or the man from another place in Twin Peaks, the cowboy. I'd even say he's maybe even Ben, the Dean Stockwell character in Blue Velvet with the, the pancake makeup and the otherworldly, you know, he, he's never commands anything per se, but, but he seems to be driving, you know, Frank and his uh, manic chaos that he's causing. And, and, um, so I mean, this, this sort of otherworldly character who, can be benevolent or, you know, a, a real antagonist or, or just kind of gives you the power to do what you really want to do. And sometimes that's a horrible thing. And sometimes that's, uh, you know, make the better decision, correct your attitude and get your Sylvia North story made, you know, um, this, this muse or, 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 you know, demigod or whatever figure shows up again and again in his films. The one movie that I was thinking of too, and so if people haven't read Wild at Heart, which was, you know, a Barry Gifford book that Lynch adapted, and 
none of, as far as I remember, because it's been a while since I've read it, but I don't think any of the Wizard of Oz stuff is in Gifford's book, and it all comes from Lynch's interpretation. And I really feel like he's still doing a little Wizard of Oz type thing with this movie, especially when you look at the beginning and you look at Fred and Renee and how that is shot. It's very shallow in its focus a lot of times and just it feels very flat. The, you know, there are some harsh shadows, but it just, it feels almost two dimensional. And then. When you arrive in Oz after the murder happens, after he transforms into Pete, you know, the door opens and it's in color. I mean, literally one of the first scenes that we see with Pete is him out in his backyard and it's a very colorful backyard. You think about where he's working at the mechanic shop and it is super colorful. The red car with Alice with that white hair and those contrasts of that. I mean, that's very much we're not in Kansas anymore for me. And I, again, I could be reading into that. And then I think about how Pete lives on Garland Street. I'm like, oh, is that a Judy Garland reference? So I'm not going to talk about Judy. In fact, we're not going to talk about Judy at all. We're going to keep her out of it. Could be reading too much into that, but... I feel like he's still kind of carrying on with the Wizard of Oz thing. And maybe the mystery man is the wizard. Alice and Renee are the the twin witches. They're the, you know, the, he dropped a house on, on the one sister and now he's got to deal with the other. And yeah, I think that's, I do think that Wizard of Oz heavy. I just, I watched that too in preparation for this and, and the, uh, the, the previous part, the point blank with the Borman, seem to be kind of hung up on, on the Wizard of Oz as well. So uh, I think you're right. No, it was not in the Gifford book. Uh, there wasn't any any of that. Uh, it's one of the only pop culture things the uh, Wild at Heart novel never talked about, I think. <laughs> With Wizard of Oz, I always think of it as being about you know, trying to go home and no place like home. And the thing that Lost Highway for me uh, resonates with Twin Peaks is that the the horror is within the home in both you know cases where it's like that isn't the place that you retreat from the horror the way Blue Velvet has the you know Wizard of Oz references too with Dorothy and I think she might even uh, there are ruby slippers in that maybe too but it's like it's a there's there's traces of it in Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart it you know becomes like a proper part of the story but the the Twin Peaks and Lost Highway. It, I, I don't know. I never thought about the Garland thing, but you're right. It's it's got to be it's got to be a reference to to Judy. <laughs> and there's references to you. You know, we talked about how this was the first in his his kind of Hollywood or L.A. trilogy that that carried out. And and who knows? Maybe we'll get another uh, installment someday. But but there does have to be some in, intentional referencing of Hollywood in it. In Mikey brought up that it's Natalie Wood's daughter playing the the role uh, as, as you know, Althazar Getty's dressed in a James Dean, you know, outfit. And, and, but we got Lynch being kind of inspired or obsessed with the OJ Simpson murder, a very Hollywood murder. And of course, Robert Blake going on to be front and center in his own murder shortly after this. And you got Natalie Wood, who was possibly murdered by her husband, uh, being represented in her daughter here. And you got, uh, you got Jack Nance. You got Jack Nance. You got uh, Jack Nance, who I don't think lived to see the premiere of this film. When the news broke, all you heard was like, 
he might have been killed after getting in a fight at a donut shop, which sounded like a Lynch scenario <laughs> played out. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. But I mean, I mean, that's that was part of the news cycle when Lost Highway was coming out in the media. I'm like, oh, my God, like that's such a Lynchian way for, you know, Mr. Racerhead to go. <laughs> well, and you got Michael Massey, his character dying in a stupid accident on the coffee table. And he's, uh, you know, one of right off the bat, he's involved with the Brandon Lee dying and the crow. He's, he's the actor, you know, who, who was supposed to fire the bullet. So. And Andy's death is a reference to William Holden's death because William Holden from Sunset Boulevard, you know, head colliding with the table death, you know, it's, it's, it's another like underground kind of reference to that movie, but there's a bunch of them, but that's, one of the more grim ones. I- <laughs> Balthazar Getty's the grandson of, uh, of J. Paul Getty and, and the kidnapping and, and all of that too. So, I mean, that's, there does seem to be some very intentional stuff. I mean, obviously the Robert Blake couldn't have been intentional, but, uh, but it does kind of add another spooky layer to the, the whole place the film sits in all these connections. Yeah, I was going to say he also met with the detective and was shown photographs of the Black Dahlia murders before making the film. And I know that um, when I interviewed a guy that did props on Blue Velvet, he told me that Lynch had a whole book of crime type photos of like real dead bodies. You know, I think he was looking for ideas for the makeup for maybe the the mutilated husband of Dorothy, you know, like he was looking for ideas for, you know, things in the film. But there is that kind of grounding in like real true crime imagery that informs some of his some of his his imagery and stories. And I think that the death of Renee, I think, you know, the, the way that the corpse is depicted kind of only fleetingly, maybe for ratings reasons. But I think that that's a Black Dahlia reference, if anything. And Actually surprised yeah. he didn't make a straight up Black Dahlia movie at one point because the way De Palma did. Wow. That would have been good. Probably would have been better than what De Palma did. Probably. Sorry, Brian. I know you listen to this podcast, Brian. And by the way, David, if you ever want to come on, I swear I won't talk about your movies. We'll talk about ducks. Talk about wood carving. We'll talk about Brian De Palma. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, we'll have De Palma and we'll talk about Lynch. Well, I thought of the Palma a little bit when we were watching this because one film that you and I have talked about, Mike, is uh, Body Double. And I thought about Body Double big time watching this again and as far as like the, like that weird LA noir erotic thriller, you know, kind of ties to the porno world and like that kind of weird fascination slash repulsion with that. I mean, Lynch has such complicated feelings about girls getting involved in prostitution or pornography and like half these movies or television shows. I mean, whether it's, you know, Laura Palmer going to One-Eye Jacks or One-Eye Jacks being, I guess, like a stand-in for Mokes in this, you know, as far as like, you know, when Arquette goes there, it's like they go down the wrong path in his mind. And one thing I didn't think about until this last time watching it, I think that I have to credit Nick Pinkerton's essay, putting this thought in my head, is that when we have... Alice stripping at gunpoint to the Marilyn Manson song, which was a controversial scene. Is that meant to be read as Pete's fantasy of what she's telling him? Because of the way that the shot, when she's reaching towards Mr. Eddie, and then she touches his face, breaking the fantasy. Because their relationship goes to shit right after she tells him that, because it triggers the jealous side of Fred. And then for the rest of the relationship, the power balance is totally off, and he's just trying to catch up, and she's become cold to him. 
And this is probably in Fred's imagination, like, oh, women are all the same. Like, Fred's back to the, like, enough in the surface of, of that body. It becomes like Fred's undoing all over again to the point where the same song that he's imagining in his failed attempt at lovemaking, hearing it again and being told straight up that you'll never have her. You know, that, that brings him fully out of the fantasy, but it's already kind of breaking down when the jealousy emerges, when he finds something about her past. The story begins, if memory serves, exactly the same as the story that Renee starts to tell. Like, he's like, how did you, how do you know Andy? So how'd you meet that asshole Andy anyway? It was a long time ago. We met at a place called Moke's. We became friends. He told me about a job. What job? I don't remember. Anyway, Andy's okay. And then she kind of fades off, you know, doesn't really tell him anything else. Again, you're so hard to understand. I don't get you kind of thing. And then we get now Pete with Alice and it starts the same way, but then she continues. Met this guy at a place called Mokes. We became friends. He told me about a job. No. <laughs> Just a job. I didn't know what. He made an appointment for me to see a man. Maybe it starts with him being horrified hearing this scenario, but it quickly turns into, I think, Pete getting very hot about it. And it feels like it ends up turning into like a penthouse forum type story. You know, I never thought this would happen to me, but I got sent on this job by this guy named Andy. And I went in and there are all these muscle men, this big black guy pumping iron and stuff. It's like, it totally looks like a porn scenario. And I'm just like, Okay, you know, and it, it kind of fits with the idea too later when they're watching the, the porn slash snuff film on, on screen and Mr. Andy's just there fucking her in front of everybody by the projector. I'm like, okay, great. It was interesting the way the power dynamics shift in that scene in the, she's got a gun to her head. She's being forced to do this, but once she does it, she has the power. Like Mr. Eddie's cast his eyes downward and like she's got him in the palm of her hand. So yes, he can make her do this, but now she's got the power and, and it happens in the, in the relationship with, you know, as it's dramatized with Pete, he won't let go on this. You know, how do you know this? What do you, you know, how to tell me your story. Once she exposes herself either physically in the, in that scene or, or tells Pete, her story, then she has the power, you know, kind of, he made her do it, but now she's totally got him. She's got him bumping off Andy and with her and, you know, ripping him off. And, and, and the, the, the scene in the desert, the lovemaking scene is, you know, the dynamics of that are completely different than what they were, you know, in their first, their first time in the hotel when, you know, he was, he was a beast and then, you know, and she's on top in the desert and she, that's all shot. Like, um, what did Lynn shoot before? Was it an obsession series of ads? That's so like a perfume ad to me. 
the the men in the picture push and push to you know expose yourself tell me everything show me everything and she's resistant to do it but once she does then she has all the power in the in the relationship or at least that's their perception of it is that i'm intimidated by her she is kind of running the show from here on um so it, it's an interesting thing i read a couple of things with people complaining about you know that 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 the Patricia Arquette character wasn't, you know, either talking about Renee or Alice, that we don't get any scenes from their point of view. And I was like, well, cause the whole thing is from the point of view of this one, you know, very troubled perspective. We're not getting a good idea of who anybody else is, but for this, this person whose point of view we're seeing this through, yeah, things have really changed once, once they get what they push for, you know, show me everything, tell me everything. The only real point of view shot that we get in the film is like the mental point of view from Fred when he's calling Renee and you see the camera inside. It's very much like how we're going to have that, that videotape show up with uh, somehow a, a there's the, the floating observer like you're talking about. Like when Fred is calling Renee, suddenly we're in their house and the camera is roving around. It's like the evil spirit from Evil Dead, you know, going around looking and coming across this phone. Nope, she's not there. Let me go look. Here's this phone. Nope, she's not there either. And it's him, you know, torturing himself with that stuff. So it's like this imaginary POV that we have with him looking for her you know, through the phone line. It's funny you say the Evil Dead because Peter Deming's first credit as a DP, I think, was Evil Dead 2 Dead by Dawn. So it's like, you know, you're right, you're right guy for those kind of Evil Dead shots. But I, I also thought about um, just how loud that phone is. And I'm wondering if Fred deliberately jacks up the volume so that she can't sleep through his call because who could sleep through the loudest phone in cinema? <laughs> Oh my God. I was watching it with headphones on today and some of those music sequences. It's just like, holy shit. Like, you know, I put a spell on you. It's just so loud. And then you cut back to something else. And then it's like another song comes up or, you know, it's kind of like those cigarettes and wild at heart, right? Where it's just like that crackle and just it boomed in the theater when you would light those cigarettes. It's funny, Israel, you're saying Jedediah about, about Alice and about like how she's in control because yeah, you're right that she, other than that one moment of, of panic when the guns pulled on her, she's in control in every scene that she's in. I mean, even, yeah, from the first introduction where she gets out of the car to the time that she walks into that shack, uh, you know, in the desert, like she doesn't really have any moments of weakness. And whether that's a good or a bad thing kind of depends on if you're more in Pete's head or Fred's head, <laughs> because either way, she's always calling the shots in every scene, whether she's the sexual aggressor or like the cold, unattainable, you know, treacherous woman that'll point a gun at you and kill, get you involved in murder. <laughs> you know, but she's, she's always in control and. I always thought of the, the gunpoint scene, again, like an echo of Blue Velvet, like the horror of like, what if you put a woman in a, that kind of abusive situation and she liked it? How horrible would that be? And like, that's the, that's the thing with Blue Velvet that made people so upset at the time was like, you know, that character getting off on the masochist, you know, masochistic dynamic of it. And like, isn't this, you know, saying something bad? Well, if that woman represents everyone, then yeah, but it's an echo of that. But, but I think that's just his jealous, anxious interpretation of the moment. I think we're actually seeing is somebody that 
sees how to take control of the situation and does. And so it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting character. I never thought of it as like, um, because she's underplaying it so much people and because nobody's that likable, quote unquote, in the film. I, I know that some people were maybe dissatisfied because they wanted her to be maybe as likable as she is in something like true romance. And she's not doing that kind of character, but nobody is in that film. Like everybody is kind of doing stylized noir archetypes in a way. Gary Busey's pretty likable. Yeah, that's true. And Sheila is. Yeah, I feel bad for Sheila. I mean, Sheila is very much, like you were saying, that Laura Dern character. You know, she's especially, I picture that Laura Dern face after Dorothy is there naked on the front lawn and she knows who Jeffrey is. And Laura Dern with that, like, wide open. That anguished grimace, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, which she just, like, put to work in uh, Inland Empire so much. When we talk about like home video re- treatment for Lost Highway, one thing that is still left to be shared with the public is all the deleted scenes because this was a film that was cut down by I think at least 15 minutes from his original cut. And I know that it was originally rated NC-17. He's never really restored any of his films to an X-rated cut when he has the power to. Blue Velvet has always stayed the same. Wild at Heart even has never come out on home video uncut, to my knowledge. But one of the scenes that was cut from Lost Highway, I, I assume they filmed it, was seen kind of like in Wild at Heart, where some guys drunkenly imposing themselves on Sheila at that like place where they dance that bowling alley kind of location. And some guys are like trying to dance and like kind of get a little too close to her and Pete sees it and and gets into a physical altercation like that jealousy even extends to a woman that he mostly just treats kind of like a plaything and not like a serious partner in any way but even with someone like Sheila he has that kind of violent possessive streak that whether that's Fred or that's Pete you know um it, it it's it's a, it's a it's a shading of the character and also kind of like further confuses Sheila into thinking that maybe he loves her because he's the kind of person that would like kick a guy's ass for like no reason <laughs> because you know he's possessive of her but it's just it's just him being animalistic it's not even about love but it would have been it would have been interesting had they retained i i get from pacing wise why they don't but that even more than some of the like stuff with the morgue that they cut out, where Lynch plays the morgue attendant, I guess it would have been an echo of the Blue Velvet thing. Like you can learn a lot from a dead body. Like you know that the lines kind of you know that, that kind of weird Lynchian forensics kind of scene where you're not going to learn anything <laughs> from it. I don't know why that stuff was cut other than for pacing, but you know there's more to the Lost Highway story that we're hopefully one day going to see. I was trying to get in touch with Mary Sweeney, and apparently she's on a brand new podcast as well. I can't remember the name of it right now, but so I had reached out to her because I wanted not just from the producing angle, but from the editing angle, because I was like, yeah, tell me more about these deleted scenes. But yeah, I would love to eventually see the maybe Lime Green Mystery Disc 2. Maybe they'll be on there. So let's go ahead, guys. We're going to take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Barry Gifford, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, good job, brain. 
Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hello, Projection Booth listeners. This is Mark Bigley, the host of Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. You may remember me from Projection Booth episodes on The Antenna, Crumbs, and The Brood. And Mike White himself has appeared on my show where we discussed Eraserhead, Taxi Driver, The Evil Dead, and Shivers. Wake Up Heavy is a show where I talk about movies that blew my mind as a kid. Things like Phantasm. This morning shots are bullshit. Tourist Trap. You are so pretty. Dead and Buried. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. And Halloween 3. A joke on the children. Other guests have included genre film journalists Anya Stanley, Jerry Smith, Sam Panico, and Simon Fitzjohn. Every once in a while, I even convince my own daughter, Cleo, to join me. Hey, that's me. Usually, though, it's just me, a mic, and my memories of some really wonderful horror films. So come check us out, wakeupheavy.com, soundcloud.com, slash wakeupheavy, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget... Anything can happen when you wake up heavy. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts. Catchers, both Android and iOS. How did you become a writer? Oh, I've been writing stories since I was 11 years old. 
basically I thought that everybody knew what they wanted to do with their lives, you know, with their life you know, early on. And like, this is what it was meant to be. And the fact that I began writing stories basically the same way I'm doing now for the last 63 years or so, you know, it was pretty remarkable. You know, anyway, it took me a while to realize that not everybody knew what they wanted to do when they were 11. You know, I think the first book of yours I read wasn't even fiction. It was Devil Thumbs a Ride. Mm -hmm. What's your relationship with film? Well, if you actually read my Roy stories, which are all now collected in a big volume called Roy's World, and there's even a film now coming out about it. I talk about this a lot, you know, in a semi-autobiographical way. I grew up in hotels and mostly traveling with my mother, and uh, I was left alone a lot. Being alone and being in a hotel room, you know, I was free to stay up all night and watch all night movies. And my mother also, which I did, and my mother also uh, was a great moviegoer, especially to foreign films. So she would take me to foreign films, you know, early on. And so that's really, I think, where I was drawn to it. And I developed probably a sense of narrative and how to put stories together. You know, how to tell a story, basically. And, you know, this was unconsciously or subconsciously, rather. And uh, so it had a lot to do with my sense of narrative. So obviously you're writing years, if not decades, before Wild at Heart. Have you been approached by Hollywood before that to do any adaptations of your work? Yes. Uh, the first work of mine that was bought for the movies was an early novel from 1980 called Port Tropique. It's still in print. And uh, for a long time was a vintage paperback, and now it's part of Penguin Random House. In any case, uh, so Portrait Peak was bought up, gee, practically right after it was published and uh, went through various incarnations, a typical Hollywood story. And the film never got made, ultimately. Uh, you know, they'd hired a director, and then they asked me to write the first screenplay. I'd never written a screenplay. They asked me, could I do it? And they said they would pay me some more money. And I said, sure, I can do it. <laughs> so I went and bought a copy of John Huston's screenplay of Treasure of the Sierra Madre because I thought there were some similarities between Portra Peak and that in the sense that it was a novel that I admired greatly because I was a big reader of B. Traven. And uh, Houston certainly knew how to write a screenplay, a compelling screenplay. And so being that it was an adaptation of a novel, and so I got a copy of the shooting script and modeled my screenplay after it. And then, you know, the producers brought in a couple of other writers and, uh, you know, prof so-called professional screenwriters. But it's funny because a few years ago when I was moving my studio, I came across my original script which was hand-printed on a yellow legal pad, you know, probably about 50 or 75 pages long. And I realized that my screenplay was a lot better than theirs. The reason being that I departed more from the novel. I used the novel as a jumping-off place because I, you know, understood that a movie is not the book. The movie is the movie. And, you know, you use the book for inspiration or whatever else, you know, I mean, however... You need the novel, you go back to it for the dialogue and so forth. And anyway, uh, after having had some experience myself, 
I realized that I had done a better job. It was not perfect by any means. Don't I, I don't want to exaggerate this. And it certainly would have needed more work, you know, had they used it. But I understood it. And that later came up in another film made of a novel of mine, Perdita Durango. When I wrote the first screenplay, and then they brought in a number of screenwriters and eventually went back basically uh, to my screenplay with some additions. But it went through, you know, all kinds of hands and, you know, different people's approaches to it. And I find that the best thing is to use the novel as mainly as inspiration. And and to, to answer your question originally, or or to address the devil thumbs a ride, there wasn't a book like it. Uh, I started writing it as a column for a magazine mystery scene, later for the Guardian, and uh, you know here in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. Pretty soon, I had a book length uh, number of these little essays about you know mainly noir films, and my editor then at Grove Press said, well, this is a book. This is really great. I said, well, you put it together, which he just alphabetized them, and published as The Devil Thumbs a Ride. It was, I think, the only book of mine of any kind that never got one bad review. So nobody picked on it in any way. You know, everybody, you know, if they didn't love it, they at least respected it. And I've had people tell me that that really inspired their mode of writing actually, to be freer and all of that. So regardless, again, this book is still in print now under the title uh, Out of the Past Adventures in Film Noir. When I read it, it was at the point where you really couldn't see as many of the films that you can see now. Reading those reviews almost felt mythical, like, wow, this movie sounds amazing, but I don't even know if it exists or if it's just a product of Barry Gifford's mind, because some of them are just so out there. Well, thank you, but it's both. I mean, you're right. I mean, that's a thing. Again, you know, I was inspired by these films. So many of them, you know, were the films that I saw in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning in a hotel room in, uh, you know, God knows where, New Orleans or Havana, Cuba or, you know, where, wherever we were, you know, and uh, and so that's how it came about. It just came out of all of that, and I, as I wrote in the preface. When Hollywood comes knocking again for Wild at Heart, are you skeptical? Do you think, here we go again? No, there were, uh, you know, there were some feelers in between about, you know, a couple of other properties and this and that. But, uh, you know, this is normal. I mean, you know, you publish and people need stories, and at least that's the way it used to be. And no, when Wild at Heart came along, that was, a, I've told the story many times, but the short version is that the main producer of the film, Monty Montgomery, was a, uh, you know, a reader of mine. And uh, he came by my studio uh, on his way up to Washington State, where they were about to begin filming what became Twin Peaks. I was then called Northwest Passage. And he asked me what I was writing. He had a book for me to autograph, and and uh, which I did. And Monty and I became friends, friendly then, and then of course friends. And then he uh, he asked me what I was working on, and I said, "Well, I'm just a little bit short of finishing this new novel, Wild at Heart." And he said, "Well, can I read it?" 
And I said, well, I'll let you read it. I had an extra copy of the manuscript. I said, I'll let you read it, but it's not quite finished. It is basically finished. I've already sold it to, you know, to the publishers, and they're bringing it out in April, this next April, and like that. But don't show it to anybody. So the next thing I knew, a couple of days later, I got a call from David Lynch. And Lynch said, I, listen, this is fantastic. All the green lights are going off. Uh, I want to make a movie of this right now. So as soon as I finish this pilot, we're going to make the movie of Wild at Heart. So as Monty Montgomery later said to me, it's never going to be this easy again. It's going to go from step one through all the various steps. And, uh, you know, we did it. And David said, I want you to write the screenplay. I said, well, I can't because I'm writing the second novel. I'm already beginning the second uh, novel, you know, involving Sailor and Lula, and, you know, it looks like it's going to be a much longer project. And I was thinking then maybe of not publishing Wild at Heart on its own. I was thinking of, you know, waiting until whatever I had in me, which turned out to be eight novels, and finally is collected as, you know, Sailor and Lula, you know, the collected novels, these many years later. But it was a good thing I didn't. And David said, no, no, it's you know, perfect the way it is now. So I said, but I can't, I, I can't do it. I said, you write the screenplay, send it to me, and I'll tell you what's wrong with it, which is the truth, you know, and he did. And I, you know, I gave him my feedback. You know, that was, that's the story. And the movie got made and we won the, you know, Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. And, you know, the thing was, I was in France doing promotion for the novel, which had become a bestseller a month before the movie was even shown at Cannes. And the book had been published in the United States in that April. And the movie didn't get released here until August of that year, 1990. But in any case, by the time the guys, you know, with the film got there to show it at Cannes, the book was already famous. I mean, you know, it was just happened to, ha that's what happened. And uh, so they had a great reception for it in France. And that's the story. So that was, you know, and Monty was absolutely right. It was never going to be that easy again. David Lynch must have liked working with you because he would go on to work with you again several more times, including Hotel Room. What was that experience like? I forget what the next thing exactly that we did, but the next thing that got produced was, yes, they had came up with this idea for a television series, and HBO bought it, I remember, in meeting with HBO. And, you know, so basically, uh, I was hired to write one of three uh, episodes, and David was, you know, going to direct that episode, and there were other people set up to do the others. In the meantime... Then they came back to me and they said, well, we need two episodes and can you write another one? And I said, when are you filming? And they said, in two days. So I wrote the second one. I wrote two, one called Tricks and one called Blackout. And I wrote Blackout in two days, less than that. And uh, David loved it and he directed that one too. So we did two of the three. And later, as the producer said, we should have done all three by you two guys and released it as a feature. Uh, and HBO, even though we won our time slot, you know, whenever they showed it, I don't know, three times or something, they hated it. They wanted Tales from the Crypt. They wanted a comic book, and it wasn't a comic book. And so we had, we were doing something entirely different, later imitated by Quentin Tarantino with his film Four Rooms. That's what happened. I'm proud of that work. It was great. It became a book. It became, you know, the plays have been performed all over the world. Uh, and I wrote three of them actually. So the book, 
you know, uh, which until very recently was still in print, you know, uh, it was called Hotel Room Trilogy. And it was great. It was wonderful to, to do it. The, I mean, you couldn't do better by the actors. I mean, it was just absolutely fantastic. I mean, these guys, Harry Dean Stanton and Freddie Jones, and I mean, they, they were all wonderful. Really, really wonderful. So I had a great time with that. And, you know, nobody changed a word of what I wrote. The scripts were entirely mine. And, uh, you know, then, of course, we went on to do other things, including Lost Highway. Which came first, the screenplay for Perdita Durango or the screenplay for Lost Highway? You know something, it was really kind of about the same time because David came to me uh, at a particular moment and he said, listen, I want to make a little film for $2 million in black and white and uh, I need to make a film and, you know, I want you to write it with me. So he did. He came up to my studio in uh, Berkeley. And, uh, you know, we began, we wrote a first draft together, and then I had to go to Spain, you know, where they were under you know, taking the Perdita Durango, and I think I had a book to make some appearances for, whatever it was, and then I came back after two weeks or however long it was, and we had each, you know, read the first draft that we had written and saw the changes that needed to be made, and we made them, and that was that story, but by this time it had blown up. And now, of course, it had to be in color, and it had to be this, that, and the other. And it went from being a little black-and-white $2 million movie to a much bigger budget and color. <laughs> so, and, you know, the rest is what happened. One of the earlier times we spoke, you told me to not ask about the meaning, and I'm not going to ask you about the meaning, but I want to ask you about the process of you and David Lynch working together to create the Lost Highway story. Well, you know, one thing I will tell you is that in the first draft, there were a lot of comedic scenes. And one thing we did realize that it was that we couldn't have these scenes, not the same way. There's irony in it, of course, uh, you know, and there are some things which you could, could be considered humorous. But nevertheless, we understood what we were creating here and, you know, with this story. And I didn't think it was a very difficult story to follow. There were occasions where I spoke to uh, a psychiatrist and a woman who taught at Stanford, whom I happened to sit next to on the on the plane, actually, to Barcelona, I think, during that time. And she said, oh, yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. It's a psychogenic fugue. And then later, a unit publicist uh, for the film also, you know, learned that. And uh, so we felt we were on solid ground. I don't. I don't see the difficulty in the story. I mean, you know, there there is a an, a, a kind of a coda, you know, where Fred is driving down the road, but he's, you know, Fred's a, a madman by now. He cracked up. What's the big deal? What, I mean, what's the mystery? Is is what I'm saying now? How it was reflected in terms of Fred's imagination, Pete's imagination, wh whomever. You you know it's fine. I, I I like the fact, and David liked the fact that people had different interpretations of it, and so it's become, I guess you would call it a cult film. Or but in any case, I mean there there have been from almost the beginning college courses taught in Lost Highway. I attended one. I was asked to speak at one actually at Stanford. My son actually took a course. He was in, in the original test audience, in fact. Uh, with us, and uh, he was a student at UCSD at the time, 
And he took a course in Lost Highway at UCSD. And later the professor found out that he was my son and wanted me to explain the film to him. He was French, by the way. But in, in, in any case, and wrote a long essay in French that David and I never read. In any case, that's, that's the story behind that. And I think we were a bit taken, not taken aback, but a bit surprised by the confusion that came up. And, uh, you know, David's films are usually greeted with, you know, some people love it and some people, you know, dig what, what he does or how he does it and some people don't. And I'm sure it's the same thing that happens with my novels. So, you know, we were together on that one. Everything, I mean, actually in a recent time when I was with Dave and somebody was asking something about it, not not a uh, an interview or anything, a formal interview, but, you know, he said, well, we were together from the beginning on that one. You know, that went just like, you know, we wanted it to go. Sounds like it was a pretty good partnership. Oh, well, David and I both are very, you know, we work, in, you know, intensely and is, is a good way to put it. And so our concentration, we were right on the money with that. I mean, you know, it was, you know, really actually beautiful working relationship. And, uh, you know, and then we had a couple other stabs at films that, you know, ultimately didn't go. And not that they were turned down by anybody. We just really didn't go far enough with it for whatever reason. And, uh, I mean, movies are like that, you know, and, and that's, and that's the story. You mentioned those moments of comedy and just about all of them are tinged with darkness. I mean, the death of Andy is probably the most hilarious way to go. Oh yeah. And it was played so, so beautifully. Yeah. Well, I wrote that scene or, you know, conceived it because we wrote everything together and we take, we share responsibility. But I said, can you film this? You know, where the guy flies off and, and, and it was funny because my mother had a coffee table at one point that, you know, was glass with sharp edges like that. And so as a kid, you know, I remember people having to be careful so that they didn't, you know, cut themselves on the edge of, I mean, why anybody would make or have a table like this, I have no idea. But it stuck in my head, right? And so that's, that's what it grew out of. I suppose, too, that the addition of the Robert Blake character adds an element of the supernatural, and that might also throw people. We didn't know who he was, so we just called him the Mystery Man, and then he wound up just being billed as the Mystery Man. Without going too deeply into this, you're, you're inside somebody's mind and their imagination, and it's he's not sane. And, you know, that's, that's basically it. I, I don't want to, you know, overwork that, you know. My favorite line in the film is, act. I mean, there's Mr. Eddie's, you know, we can really out-ugly them some bitches, can't we? Actually, at the beginning of this film, David had optioned a novel of mine, Night People. You know, he had it for over a year, and he wanted to make a film out of it, but he couldn't quite figure out how to do it. And I said, well, let's just make, you know, we're, we're capable of coming up with half of an original thought, a piece. You know, let's give it a try. And he says, but I love these two sentences, especially in the book. I said, well, I own the sentences. We can use them. And uh, one of which is the line that Mr. Eddie says towards the end, and the other's in the beginning where one of the women says to the other, we're just a couple of Apaches riding wild and on the lost highway. But that was the inspiration for David. I mean, in that sense, taking off from those points. 
And to me, it culminated when in the, in the film when one of the cops, one of the detectives, looks at this photograph and he says, "There's no such thing as a bad coincidence." So therefore, it does make sense to me, and it made sense to him. And that's all. We weren't teasing anybody. We weren't out there to confuse anybody or to make anybody wonder. In that sense, it, it just, it's it's a story. You know, as my friend, the Spanish director, because Lunas wrote me after he'd seen it, he said, the first 45 minutes is the scariest movie I've ever seen in cinema. And, you know, I was flattered in a way, but that wasn't necessarily the intention. You know, I mean, it's interesting to me sometimes to see what people come up with. Sometimes it's like totally different than what you imagined. And, you know, and sometimes they get it. So it's individual, you know. I love what an important piece music plays in the film as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was true with Wild at Heart, too. I mean, you know, and David and I, of course, you know, I started basically as a musician when I was a kid and and a teenager. You know, music's always been very important to me and, and certainly to David, too. So we paid particular attention. We paid particular attention to what the music was behind what we were doing. Can you tell me more about Roy's World? You said it came out in 2020, and I don't know of very many films that actually came out in 2020. Well, that's a difficulty, you know, in a sense because of the pandemic. But yes, it did. It came out in 2020, and a film was made about it, called also called Roy's World. Uh, you can look that up, you know, roysworldfilm.com. And, you know, that was shown at a couple of European festivals, and then everything got shut down because of the pandemic. So now the U.S. premiere is going to be in November in Chicago, as it should, and at the Music Box Theater. Where are you located? I'm over in Detroit, so just a few oh, hours you're away. you're in Detroit. So, yeah, so that, so now it's you know going to be shown at a bunch of festivals here, and you know they're selling it and that kind of thing. It's a feature documentary. And it's an interesting documentary. I mean, I really like it because when I was approached about it, I said, okay, you, you know, there have been a couple documentaries done about me and my work in France and Italy, and they were feature documentaries, and they were okay, but they were standard in their approach, you know, talking heads and so forth. And I said, you can make a, a, a film about Roy's world. I said, but I'm not going to be in it. And so... Rob Christopher, the filmmaker, the director, I mean, managed to do that. I mean, he's got people reading the stories or parts of the stories, Willem Dafoe and Matt Dillon and Lily Taylor, and, you know, he's got animation, and it's very creative and, and beautifully done. The plan was for the film, of course, to come out at the same time as the book came out, but as you so correctly said, you don't know of anything that came out in 2020, so things certainly did get buried, but no, it's there. And, uh, you know, it's in print and it's available and it's like a 720 page book. And, uh, there's actually another book coming out called The Boy Who Ran Away to Sea, which is also more Roy stories. Um, it's, and it's sort of a, it's a little bit different than the rest of them. I mean, there's been a series of, of, books of stories, you know, the Roy stories. And so Roy's world collected everything to date. And now, you know, I, during the pandemic, I sat down and I wrote another one. That'll be out next April, the next spring.
spring uh, of 2022, like I said. So no, Roy's World is out, and like I say, the film is the same title. Did I rewrite that you and Robinson DeVore were supposed to make a movie together? Well, that was a, really a very bad experience. Uh, I was the the guys who produced the film or who were producing the film came specifically to see me because they felt I was the right person to write the screenplay based on Jack Black's book You Can't Win. And one of them was a BBC producer, and the other guy was a money guy, I guess. And in any case, they were very persuasive. And I said, okay, I'll write a draft of the film. So I did, and they loved it. And I worked very hard on this. And in fact, I showed it to Willem Dafoe, who's a good friend of mine. And Willem said, oh, I'm Jack Black. I want to play this role. So I thought it was all said and done. You know what I mean? And then they hired this director whom I'd never heard of and never met, this guy, DeVore. And he met me in New York and, you know, said, I love this. I love your screenplay, this and that and the other. And all was just fine. And that was the end of that. And the next thing I knew, he had rewritten the screenplay, a wholesale rewrite with somebody else whom I'd never heard of. And he was reluctant to show it to me because I never even told me that this was being done. And as a result of this, it was just dreadful. It was, and it had nothing to do with my screenplay. And, uh, one of the producers ultimately then quit the project, the main guy, because he was in dispute about this, you know, with them. And ultimately, I don't know whose hands it wound up with. I think Matt Dillon, who was approached to star in it, uh, and he turned it down. And Willem, uh, who was approached, of course, immediately, he turned it down. He says, this isn't the script that I agreed to be in. And he said, no, this is nothing like it. And so whatever, I, I think a, an actor named Michael Pitt was involved, and I think he took it over. And actually, I heard they did make a film of it, I guess, based on DeVore's screenplay, and that my name is on, you know, the credits as one of the writers, which I sh it shouldn't be. Nobody asked me another question about it. I would have taken my name off of it. No, it was just mishandled entirely, and like I say, the main producer even quit and later wrote me apologizing for what happened, to the, for the mishandling of it all. And that sort of thing. So the movie, of course, never got released. I don't, I don't even think I'm cable, so I know nothing really about. I've never seen it, and I don't know anything. About, and I wouldn't want to see it. But I worked harder, I think, on that screenplay than almost anything. Uh, almost any screenplay, certainly as, as hard as I were, have ever worked on a screenplay before. I was very happy with it, very proud of it. Everybody seemed to love it, including Willem, who would have been the perfect person to play the role. There are many worse stories in Hollywood <laughs> than this. These, these things do happen. So, uh, you know, so that was it. It's like Perdita Durango. You know, I wrote the first screenplay. They wound up coming back more to it. The director who wound up doing it, Alex Iglesias, was an up-and-coming guy, and he has a good imagination and, and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't the film I would have made necessarily, but uh, there are some great things in it. I remember that for a while it was tough to find, and there was the original, and then there was a more watered-down version out there. Well, what happened was it was sold to the United States for distribution for a lot of money. 
And it was meant to make a big star out of Javier Bardem. And Javier and I had become friends. And, of course, he was very disappointed when the film wasn't properly distributed in the United States. And the reason was is because the Spanish producer, it was the most expensive film ever produced in Spain and Mexico. What happened was basically they didn't pay permissions for the use of Burt Lancaster's image you know, the scene that was taken from the film Veracruz and uh, some other advertising things, I, whatever it was. I mean, I was not privy to any of this, but it sold to 40-something countries. It sold the world. And then the distributor in the United States said, well, we can't run it with those scenes cut out. So it was sold to video and whatever the company was. I had a call one day from the video distributor who said to me, listen, we think that the title Perdita Durango is too Hispanic. Can you come? I give us a, a, another title. And I said, are you joking? So I hung up on him. So a few months later, somebody told me, oh, this film has released a video under a different title. I can't even remember the title now. And with the scenes, certain, uh, what is it? Dance with the Devil. And then the uh, particular scenes I was talking about, crucial scenes, were cut out of it. So that's the only way that it existed. But since that time, it's been exhibited in you know various places and festivals and and, and so forth, as it was intentionally made, you know, as it was made and all that originally. So unfortunately, yeah. But Javier went on to become a big star anyway. So no flies on him. He's a great guy and a great actor. And the film, you know, broke box office records in Spain and elsewhere in Europe and in Mexico, especially. It's a legend in Mexico, Dita Durango. And uh, the book became, you know, was a bestseller in most Latin American countries under that title. It was, you know, it was published separately outside the Sailor and Lula novels because Sailor and Lula don't really participate in it. They're just, they're just mentioned, so they're tangential to it in a way. But the character of Perdita Durango, who comes in in the penultimate stage of Wild at Heart, began taking over the story, the narrative in my head. So I realized she needed her own novel. And that's why I did that and then went back in Sailor's Holiday, you know, to mainly Sailor and Lula and wrote the rest of the Sailor and Lula novels. So it, you know, I'm pretty lucky it all got done, you know, in one way or another. And sometimes, you know, having nothing to do with me, really, uh, you know, it goes into the hands of other people and they make the deals they make and they make the changes they make. And, you know, as Elmore Leonard said to me a long time ago, he says, once you take the money, forget it. I mean, that's basically it. And if you don't like what they did, go on and write another one. So he was right. And so I've adopted that attitude throughout. What are you up to these days? Well, like I say, I have this new book that I'm still adding things to, The Boy Who Ran Away to Sea, which is coming out next spring. I have a new novel that I've also, you know, written the beginning of, and uh, actually involving a character who comes in at the end of uh, The Up Down, which is the eighth and last novel in the Sailor and Lula series. So I've got a lot to do, you know, and, uh, you know, very happy with this. As, as somebody once wrote about the Sailor Nula novels, they said a writer is so fortunate if characters like these come along. 
you know, during their writing lifetime. And uh, I agree. And once you understand these people and you fall in love with them, as Lynch is always talking about falling in love with the characters, and, you know, like he said about Sailor and Lula, I fell in love with them right away, and and all of that. And you have to be in love with your characters to stick with it. And you have to, you know, try your best to understand them. And so that's what I'm still doing, you know, the same thing since I was 11 years old, Mike. I mean, that's that's the the, the secret here. Is the best place for people to keep up with you over at BarryGifford.net? I don't know. I never look at it. Uh, I, I have an assistant who who is supposed to be posting stuff or putting things on it. He's, uh, you know, sometimes he's up to date and sometimes he's not. Uh, but certainly that's one place. But, you know, the books keep coming out and, you know, any bookstore can get the books if they don't have them. And, of course, there's Amazon and the films are readily available. I mean, all of these films, you can, you know, get – the one thing that was never released on DVD was Hotel Room. But it's on it's on YouTube and, uh, you know, the book was available and, uh, you know, with an extra play. And, uh, you know, it's all there. It's all now with the Internet, as you know, you can find everything. It's all it's all there. But, uh, you know, I've been fortunate in that most all of my novels are still in print. Going back to Portrait Peak or Landscape of Traveler or, you know, any of the books after uh, the, the, you know, the, the early Sailor Lula novels. And, uh, in fact, one of them, Baby Catface, was just option for film. And Night People, the film that David started out, you know, when we started Lost Highway on, has also been recently optioned again. So you never know what happens. Uh, you know, once you put the product out there, that's the way it goes. I'm not very aggressive with any of this, I have to say. The thing is that people discover the work as, you know, they have all along throughout my life, and they fall in love with it, uh, you know, with certain aspects of it or whatever, and they one property or another, and they want to make a movie. Well, now things are different because of what's happened, you know, with the proliferation of TV series and films with Netflix and Amazon and all the rest of it. So there's so much product out there. Now, I, mean, I don't know how anybody sees all of this stuff. I mean, it's like crazy. I mean, I don't. But one project that's coming up now that's very interesting to me is American Falls. I wrote a book of short stories. There's a title story of the collection called American Falls that was published some years ago. And a 30-minute film was made of it, a very beautiful version of the story. And it's very unusual. And it involves an Asian family in Wyoming, or Idaho rather, in 1960, early 1960s. And it's very different than the other work. And a director, a black director named Bay Garrett, made a 30-minute film. And uh, it's really beautiful. And, of course, the film was only seen at you know some festivals and that, that sort of thing. You know, it's a short film. It's been optioned for both feature film and potential television series. So, uh, in fact, I have the conference call with the guy who opted it tomorrow and some people. And, and But this is something I'm very interested in because I think it's very timely. I think given the political state 
of uh, the United States, especially at this time, because it involves an Asian family, minority family, a story really narrated by a young Asian girl, the time period, and I think it's something very, very different in that regard. And it's, again, it's not Sailor and Lula, it's not the Roy stories, it's, you know, it's something else entirely, and it's it's the one thing that's going. I mean, I'm interested in all of it, of course, you know, being dramatized. But this one is is different, and uh, I really hope you know they can do it. But who knows, man? You know, just like Elmore said, you know, Dutch said, you know, just write another one. Mr. Gifford, thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking with you. Oh well, great. I'm I'm I hope it serves your purposes, and your questions were. Right on the money. Uh, yeah, so take a look at Roy's World. I think you'll get a kick out of it. And then look at that film, because I think Roy Christopher, Rob Christopher, who made it, deserves enormous credit for following what I dictated to him in the sense of how this film could be made. And I really didn't think he could do it, but he did. He did it. So all credit goes to him. Right, we are back and we are talking about Lost Highway. And I was trying to do a uh, a web search on movies like Lost Highway. And, you know, we talked about some of the films noir and there's some of those things. But movies like Lost Highway, there aren't a whole lot. The only one that really came to my mind was Michael Haneke's Cachet or Hidden. And it's so tenuous, the connection. And just basically, like, if you read the one line, you know, that you get those, well, they used to have them. I don't know if they have them anymore, but those, like, uh, movie pamphlets that you would get at movie theaters where you get those, that little, like, 50 word, maybe fewer word descriptions of films. And it's basically like mysterious videotape arrives at a family's home, you know, chaos ensues type of thing. It's like, okay. I was like, oh, well, he's just ripping off David Lynch. No, it is so different. I mean, there is that idea of these tapes that start showing up, but it is wildly different. So I was kind of looking forward to like, oh, here's Haneke's take on Lynch, but it wasn't that at all. One I recently saw that came out just a few months after Lost Highway was uh, Abel Ferrara's The Blackout, where Matthew Modine plays a, a Hollywood character named Matt who's jealous of a woman and and has a has a blackout drunk and and starts to remember things or has to be told things later about what he did when he was you know blacked out at the horrible things he's done and then he 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 recreates a horrible thing he did on video Dennis Hopper is following him around with a video camera the whole whole movie and Dennis Hopper records him murdering a girl who he's dressed up to look like his ex-wife and, you know, recreating this fight he had with his wife. And he actually murders the girl in that. And I thought, man, did, did he like see Lost Highway at Cannes or something and get a, like a, you know, really inspired by that? Cause it came out in like August 
97 and Lost Highway would have been, I don't know, I assume it was at Cannes in 96, but it was not. It was not. No, it premiered at Sun- Sundance or it's an American festival. I, I can't, um, not, not, not Sundance. Gosh, um, it'll come to me like West Coast Telluride, maybe, maybe Telluride. One or the other might have been Sundance, but no, it, um, yeah, I, 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 that's funny that you mentioned the blackout because I remember even when the title was announced, I'm like, oh, it's like blackout, like the hotel room, you know, Barry Gifford, David Lynch thing with Crispin Glover and Alicia Witt, like it's the same title. Um, yeah, no, that is a totally, I, I, I definitely see the connection. I mean, I think blackout, that's at a time when Ferrara is like in a very heavy, drugs and alcohol heavy phase of his life. And I think it's just like this nightmare fantasy of what kind of horrible shit could he get into? You know, I don't know if he was drawing any kind of inspiration from a very recent David Lynch (laughs) project, but right down to the casting of Dennis Hopper. I mean, you have like, you know, things that, you know, uh, are signposts for that. I think it's interesting because the, the last, one of the most recent uh, Ferrara films, Tommaso has a whole great monologue about, horrible things that happened to him while making a film in Florida that are real life accounts of the something that happened to him while making the blackout. So it's been on my mind also, but now that's, that's a really good comparison to this one. I hadn't thought of that. It was Sundance. So oddly, according to IMDb, which I know is never wrong and has 100% accurate information checked by scholars, especially the trivia section, France premiere January 15th, 1997, which would not have been con because I think that's in April usually. Then Switzerland, January 17th, 97. And then 24 January, 1997 is Sundance Film Festival premiere. Another film to compare it to, it's already come up once in here, but I think is Sunset Boulevard in the, the Gloria Swanson, Norma Desmond, her complete denial at the end of the film you know, her entering that that place where the cameras are on her, she's ready for a close-up. This character walking through, she's clearly left our reality and gone into, you know, something that, that is more palatable for her. So, you know, it's almost like an outside-looking-in version of what's going on with, with the Madison thing. So, but that, that was the other thing that came to my mind. I don't want to be indelicate. And I don't want to get off topic too far because I think next year for November, we are going to cover Sunset Boulevard. But while I have you guys here, is Joe Gillis fucking Norma Desmond? I thought so. Kind of thought so. But yeah, I don't, you know, you put me on the spot. I haven't, haven't watched it in a while. And, I haven't that's watched it definitely, either. That's in my mind that he is. So. That dichotomy of like the good girl that he's working with versus Norma Desmond, I guess is like this sexualized older vamp type character. I mean, it is very talking about, you know, Sheila versus Alice, you know, and our main guy in the middle, our, our Joe Gillis in the middle, just like, okay, what the fuck am I going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to try to get with both of these girls at the same time, but I'll throw over the nice one for the not so nice one. I mean, it feels very, like you're saying, Jeffrey Beaumont esque as well. It's closer to Pete in that he's, he's somebody that just takes advantage of the situation. I mean, he's, he's a lot more corrupted than Jeffrey Beaumont, who's really an innocent learning, tempted by, you know, adult experience, but ultimately rejects, rejects the, 
the extremes of, of that life. But Pete does not have that kind of moment of redemption or anything like that. He just goes, he just goes along for the ride. And in that, in that way, he is like, you know, the, the guy in Sunset Boulevard who's, his, his, his die is cast when he, you know, when he goes in that house, like he's, he's never really gonna, he's never really gonna survive it. Well, and I can't see Jeffrey hanging out with uh, Giovanni Ribisi and that gang of hooligans either. I mean, I think those guys are going to grow up and basically be like Frank's crew. You know, I can see like Rabisi turns into the Brad Dwarf character, you know, or with then the other dude turns into the Jack Nance character. You know, you ever been to Pussy Heaven? Some of those things. That's an aspect that I kind of think Blue Velvet beats Lost Highway in is that Mr. Eddie or Dick Laurent, his, his goons are pretty anonymous, whereas Frank's crew is like, you know, you got Jack Nance, you got Brad Dorif, you got Ben. I mean, you got like, I mean, like some of the great character actor faces is part of his, his, his gang. And that's not really the same for, for Mr. Eddie. Well, Mr. Eddie's goons are basically those same male models that we see in that penthouse forum scene that I was talking about. Like those guys that are there working out. I mean, that feels like his guys, you know, like, like he would get up in the morning, come downstairs. There are all these like GQ buff guys around that he's just like, okay, you and you, you're coming with me, you know, get in the car. He won't let anybody drive him either. He's got to be the guy behind the wheel. Is that the difference between David Lynch's small town goons and David Lynch's Hollywood goons? Like could be, uh, I think you know, so. you're either the star or you're the extra, you know, the buff extra. Yeah, everybody in LA is on the outskirts of the movie industry in his world. You know, same as, you know, same as like in Body Double. Like in a lot of LA films, it's like everybody is either in the movie industry or on the outskirts. But in Lumberton, it's just you got like weirdo barflies. All those guys that hang out down on Lincoln Street, you know? It did occur to me that the, uh, the difference between his, his small town stuff and, and the LA movies is that in the, in the small town stuff, there's always, there's a diner and there's a roadhouse. The diner is, is kind of daytime, daytime communal space and, and almost like a holy space. And then the roadhouse is where everybody goes with the understanding that this is where the dark stuff is at, but everybody's there. And, uh, and in the LA movies, you just kind of feel like it's everywhere. There's no centralized location. You know, he plays at the Lunar Lounge, but, you know, maybe he plays a half dozen other clubs regularly. You know, there's there's not like a one spot where everybody goes. Uh, it seems to be everywhere at the party scenes, both in Mulholland Drive and, and Lost Highway. It felt very different in that respect to me. Los Angeles got to drive everywhere. Everything is so spaced out. I mean, you know, I, I think that that's something you feel in both Mulholland Drive and Lost Highways. People have to drive everywhere. Was you know, in something like Blue Velvet or Twin Peaks. I mean, things feel like all close together, clustered. It's more of a community environment, and yeah, that you don't get that in the LA films. Really, when it comes to Fred, like yeah, we see some daytime stuff, especially you know when the cops come over. That's day, but so much of it feels like it takes place at night. It feels like he's very much a night creature. You know, the parties at night. Daytime is for being hungover. Yeah, exactly. And there is, to your point, there's no refuge. There's no winkies that they go to. I mean, it's basically you're at that prison type house, or you're at the Luna Lounge, and that's about it for his life. 
One thing I thought about watching it this time also is that we were talking about like the fantasy of Fred wanting the life of Pete, and it's purely about sex. Uh, you know, it's 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 about becoming you know this virile young man because you look at Fred's life and he's got a life of luxury for a musician. He's living in like the nicest house, like that coolest architecture. Like it's it's very hip, it's very wealthy, and he's. He's fantasizing about a life as a grease monkey with mob ties, but is it like living with his parents? Like he's, he's, it's, it's an interesting kind of downshift in terms of economic class in his fantasy. And I don't know if Lynch is making any kind of comment on that. I know that I've read some things, you know, talk about how the Los Angeles wealthy kind of home was synonymous with like a villain's lair. I don't know if I ever thought of it like that with Lost Highway because that's, like that's Lynch's house. I mean, like that's Lynch's furniture that he made. Like it's like it's closer to how he probably lives. And so it's funny to think of it as portrayed almost as like a kind of a haunted house, you know, like but like a but like a modern haunted house. But just that because you think about class in Lynch and like it's sometimes very middle class. I mean, like Palmers have a nice clean middle class house and same with the Beaumonts and it's very suburban. So to go, like, these are maybe like the wealthy, this is the, like the wealthiest Lynch hero, like, or not hero, but like protagonist. And so it's, 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 it's interesting how it, I know that they took a long time to find the house for Pete Dayton. Like in the uh, book Room to Dream, one of the location scouts says he looked at like 150 houses because Lynch had very specific instructions for like how the house was laid out. No pool in the backyard, like had to be exactly the house you see in terms of the geography of it. Like, I don't know why you couldn't cheat the shots, but you know, that's, that's how it, it was all designed to be exactly that, that layout that you see. But I don't know. I mean, class is something that's funny in Lynch because yeah, I mean, he, he is kind of a conservative filmmaker in terms of his views. I think, I think he was misread as more of a subversive than he was in his initial Blue Velvet Twin Peaks heyday because people thought, oh, he's, he's satirizing these mores. I think he likes that stuff. <laughs> One of the films that came to my mind as we're talking about movies like quote unquote Lost Highway is the film Filth from 2013, I think it was. It was based on the, no, it was, yeah, it was 2013 Irvine based on Welsh, the yeah. Irvine Welsh book. Yeah. And that was only because of this whole idea of dissociative disorder and, you know, oh, McAvoy thinks that this is happening, but it's actually this. And don't worry, folks, you can see the twist coming from a fucking mile away. But really the stepping stone for me between Lost Highway and Filth is a movie like Fight Club, which we'll be talking about just in a few weeks here on the show. And really it's like Lost Highway 97 Fight Club. 1999, it feels very much like, you know, because Tyler Durden is the guy who's the fuck machine. He's the guy that you want to be. And I agree with you that it does seem like a step down to be Pete. I mean, Pete's basically living in Billy Joel's uptown world type of scenario here, right? All right. Yeah. You're living with your parents. That's not the ideal kind of thing, unless you're making a, you know, crack about millennials or something like that. But it's like, I can see Jack having that perfection in Tyler Durden, the guy you want to be, the guy who you want to fuck like, you that you want to look like, that you want to fight like. It's funny that that comes just on the heels of Lost Highway just two years later. Well, that year, 99, had three big twist movies, didn't it, that were all the same twist. It was, it was Fight Club and The Sixth Sense was that year and 
I think I'm thinking of being John Malkovich being the other big 99 movie that um, wasn't a twist, but it, uh, that whole trope of like, what is reality type thrillers? I mean, Lost Highway is, is certainly not the first one. You can probably point back to uh, maybe things like Jacob's Ladder or things informing that kind of trend. But I think by the time you get to Mulholland Drive, I mean, Mulholland Drive comes out in a year when you have Donnie Darko and Vanilla Sky and Memento and all these films that are like, you know, these kind of thrillers that are meant to be kind of puzzle films in one way or another. And I think Lost Highway may or may not have been, an, you know, an influencer, part of a, a trend. I mean, Fight Club, I think, definitely inspired a lot of people to do twist endings, you know, identity and things like that come come later. I think that becomes like that kind of narrative cleverness in terms of the, just on a, on a purely like writing plot level. I think that's something I associate maybe with the, with the, you know, things like Pulp Fiction just playing around with chronology. But I think that like, I, I, for whatever reason that the 90s seemed like where that idea really seems to take off in American films in a way that you didn't really have in the 80s or the, even the 70s when things were really kind of adventurous. I don't know that they really played with form quite that boldly. Maybe like with Nicholas Rogue or certain British directors, but American film really kind of played it straight, you know, down the middle with terms of storytelling until I think you get to the 90s. I mean, you can probably think of exceptions, but I mean, for the most part. Well, I want to thank my co-hosts on this, Jedediah and Bill. So, Bill, what is keeping you busy lately, sir? Supporting characters is still on hold my podcast, so I've been doing guest appearances and work on other people's shows. I just, since you mentioned The Blackout, I just interviewed Abel Ferrara last week for an episode of Directors Club, where Chris O'Neill and I talk about his Ferrara's new film, Zeros and One. So that's what I just worked on recently. I'm going to be on a couple of other podcasts next month or two. Um, uh, genre grinder and made for TV mayhem, I think, and working on some home video stuff that I can't talk about yet. But I did do my first solo commentary earlier this year for a film called The People Next Door that came out through Scorpion releasing, though, uh, you know, which, yeah, which is pretty exciting for me because I'd never done my own solo commentary before. It's a lot of work. And Jedediah, how about yourself? Just farting around on Twitter and I got a blog called Hardboiled Wonderland. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Rrrr.